it's a real um, eye-opening experience for people to understand the value of leadership. And the abysmal national approach is why America is in the situation that we're in. We're looking at a scenario right now where this is not about health, it's about whether you are voting for a Democrat or voting for a Republican. And that disparity is trickling down into the communities where people aren't taking it seriously enough. Yet 137,000 plus people have been killed in a matter of, of three months, three months. Uh, with this pandemic. And we still aren't taking it seriously. I mean, you see what happened in Atlanta with Governor Kemp, or Georgia, my apologies, with Governor Kemp, um, basically saying, uh, overruling the individual mayors who said, we're going to mandate mask use. He said, no, you can't do that, which allows it to be this tug of war where people think it's their First Amendment right not to wear a mask. It is just outrageous. It's outrageous. It is. It's so outrageous. <laughs> and I don't understand what's to prove. What are they proving? What is, let, let's just try the mask. <laughs> I mean, I mean I the fa fact that it can save somebody's life, I mean, the fact me, that it's something that simple. Y'all provoke me with this conversation, and I'm trying to hold back. Okay, okay, it's six o'clock. No, it's okay, I'm recording. I hit record. As soon as you, I, I went ahead and hit record, because I know how it go. <laughs> so because you, can, this, you can go ahead, and then as people come in, we can do. Yeah, we'll just, we'll just go. So, uh, all right, guys, I want to welcome you to um, Black Box Radio. I'm Queen, and this is after COVID, after protests, existing as Black Lives That Matter, the men's version, men, talking about what's going on in the world. We just finished talking about COVID. We haven't finished talking about COVID. So, <laughs> it's I mean, recording. We, just, we, so. we didn't finish, but you know, we just have, we put it on pause. So I just want you guys to first, we're going to introduce, introduce yourselves and then we're gonna move into the conversation. Okay, so I'm Queen from Black Box. Um, Brother TJ? I'm TJ Smith. Um, well, last I was for a former mayoral candidate, but um, I've been um, you know, a public spokesperson for a couple of different places the last few years, but I'm just really trying to advocate for what's best for our city and to pull our folks out of some of the situations that we found ourselves in through no fault of some people's own. Um, just advocating for a better Baltimore. Got it. Ray? I'm Ray Kelly. I'm a community advocate from West Baltimore. I'm the director of an organization called the Citizens Policing Project. And I'm also the lead community liaison for the monitoring team. Over, overseeing the implementation of Baltimore's consent decree. All right. All right. And our doctor tonight. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Cleo Monago. I run the Amasi Center for Black Wellness and Culture in the Charles Village area of Baltimore. I am a behavioral health analyst and a researcher. And all that stuff is really a bunch of different ways of saying activists for black life. That's really my focus, trying to do what I can to get black people to come out of what I call the white supremacy trauma trans. All right. The WTT, the white supremacy, WSTT. Something like that. <laughs> white supremacy trauma trans. All well, right. I just, so. 
All right. Well, I mean, since I'm on camera right now. I might not be the whole time, but since I'm up here, I just want to like cheers to TJ. We, you know, we in we in the same boat right now. I got some red. He got some. He got. I got some dark. He got some light. I got some water. Got some water. What you got? Uh, so, I have. I have that too. You know. Okay. Sip, sip it if you got it. I'm, Everybody I'm sipping. Yeah, I'm G. I'm a producer. I'll be kind of in the background helping to manage folks coming in and uh, chiming in on the conversation when I just can't help it. So I appreciate each and every one of you, those of you I've met before. Ray, I think this is our first time meeting, and uh, I'm excited to hear what everyone has to share this evening. Let's move right into the conversation. We were kind of discussing COVID, but um, we're going to move on from that right now, because this was after COVID, after protests, and still existing in Baltimore City. And with the chaos and the violence, but it's such a beautiful city. So I wanted to have this conversation with the men and, and kind of see what you guys' role in this rebuild. Because after we get past all the ills of society right now, I don't know, racism is not going anywhere. So we're gonna have to really work on racism. COVID, looks like we gotta work on that also <laughs> um, to get past that. But as black people ascend and use the leverage I think that we have at this moment, what will be, what's next for the males, to, for black men in the community? Who wants to jump in first? So I think right now in community, our role is just to try to maintain a source of stability. So in a community like mine in Sandtown or in Upton where the impact isn't really what the media portrays because this struggle for those residents was already hard to make it. And now mm -hmm. when we bring in COVID and stay at home orders and businesses closing, the direct impact is still ongoing. So our goal now is to just make sure that we're providing as much as we can for a stable source of sustainability. I look at this like the, I feel like we were late on the education of how this uh, disease would disproportionately impact black people in inner city America, let alone Baltimore, with what we already know with the health disparities that already exist. We know the asthmatics. I was uh, born and raised here and I had asthma as a child. And that's one of the other impacts of COVID that we're talking about as we look at putting kids back in school, understanding that there is a health disparity that already exists, that we know exists. So are we putting them in a potential Petri dish if we were to put them back in school, knowing that the rate of, of respiratory illness is higher in the city of Baltimore than in the suburbs? So it's things like that that already existed, and then you introduce this into it. And I don't know that in March we did a good enough job making sure people knew this. And it wasn't until uh, sometime in early to mid-April, I think the NAACP ended up getting a, a truck out, going into communities and educating communities of color and low-income communities that, hey, this can affect you just as much as it affects anyone else. As a matter of fact, it's going to affect you more than it affects anyone else. And I think those ramifications are something that we have to continue to let people know. I mean, as Ray mentioned not long ago, 
he's still out on Pennsylvania Avenue letting everybody know you need to wear a mask. And, and that's important. I see a lot of pictures and everything else on social media. And I'm trying to think, is that like recent? Or y'all, are y'all like gathering like 50 people right now today still when we know and we can't take for granted people know. So we have to really continue the messaging around it. I'm not sure my perspective is male specific. <clears throat> I'm a male and, I'm, and so the source of my perspective will be that of a male. Um, but I think it's something that we all should think about. Um, I remember when this first, <clears throat> excuse me, when the COVID-19 issue first was being talked about and the CDC recommended that we wear a mask, where I understand how respiratory viruses, viruses that get around through spittle, through breathing, through making contact with viruses based on people's body fluids from the mouth, getting places they don't know that's there. I know how that works. And when I first heard 10 people to a room, I was like, oh, no, I'm going to wear a mask even if it's one. And then when they went to 10 and 20 and 30, I'm like, somebody don't understand respiratory viruses because two is enough. I mean, I wrote an article about it and I said, y'all need to look at this like getting pregnant. You don't need to have a whole lot of sex to get pregnant. Once is enough. And And I remember I was walking down the street by my office three months ago and I had it was even worse. I mean, I had a whole head wrap on that went around my face and everything. Now I just, now I just wear this. I mean, I kind of calmed down a little bit. This is <laughs> the mouth. Everything was wrapped up. And this, this sister and her kids are looking at me and they were laughing at me. Um, about maybe four days later, they all of them had on masks in their little mask. Say, oh, funny, huh? You know, <laughs> and, and we kind of laughed, <laughs> laughed about laughing at me and how everybody was doing the same thing. But I think one of the things that we're dealing with regarding this mask issue is it's difficult sometimes for people, and this is as black people, to make changes that's gonna, that, that are going to make them more uncomfortable. Because a lot of black people, and, and these are not conscious perspective, these are unconscious phenomena. A lot of black people feel a sense of uncomfortability just being alive and they use breathing, sometimes smoking a cigarette, sometimes drugs, food, sometimes alcohol, whatever, to feel better. And they don't want that attempt to feel better to be interrupted. And now you're saying, I got to stay away from people and wear a mask? Well, there's some of us, again, this is unconscious, um, are resistant to that kind, of, that kind of restriction. And just because you make a recommendation to wear a mask and it's a good idea, if you don't deal with it with consideration for those unconscious issues, you may not be that successful, particularly with getting people to be consistent regarding the use of masks because there's resistance to using the mask. And it's not because something's wrong with them. It's because a lot of us live in a state of resistance to this society. You know, this is the things that our family members and parents that give us permission to talk about, but we feel it. And we need to look at black people in terms of getting black people to understand the importance of self-preservation by talking about the importance of self-preservation as part of the narrative that we're using to get them to wear masks because some of us don't value self-preservation. We, ba- we, va- we, battle, excuse me, we value joy or feeling better about things even if it's more if it's temporary over a long-term discomfort. Mm-hmm. Am I making sense? Yeah, you're making sense. Uh, making sense. You're saying that um, people are really in a psychosis and they don't want anything else. 
to make them feel any worse, so they resist. Yeah, I didn't want to use the word psychosis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think we have some unresolved trauma in our community, and yeah. um, with that trauma and COVID-19 has actually introduced more trauma and, and introduced a killer amongst us. And do you, I want to know the adjustments, particularly that um, men are going to make in the community per se, um, when it comes to after this protest and in Baltimore City, how can we address the ills, realign and use some of the leverage that we have at, at, at the moment and move Baltimore forward? That, that's what I'm trying to um, hear from, from, from the men. Well, I'll say real quickly that men in particular should be talking about all this stuff. Because I think we all know by now, for example, that COVID affects us men more than women and more than everyone. And there are pre-existing conditions that are unique to men in terms of disproportion, like heart disease, like cardiovascular care challenges, and unresolved trauma that keep us at a high risk factor when it comes to COVID. But my, I'll close my comments so I, so I won't dominate this space by saying that one thing that we have to do more is work together. That must not be a cliche, but it's true. We have a lot of silos going on and silos perpetuate the, the expectation that we're fragmented, not unified, don't get along and can't work together. And no matter how great we are by ourselves, anytime you got to work by yourself, you're at a weakness. We I need think, teams. Okay. I think that's the key, the, the what's next. Because if we allow the moment to pass, then we wait for the next one to arise. And I think if we look at just using COVID as the example, um, the bigger question and, and thing behind that is, what do we do in communities to ensure that another generation isn't raised with a disproportionate amount of pre-existing conditions? And they exist because of environmental issues. So what are we really doing to work on those long-term issues um, beyond just talking about the here and now of education? And then 20 years from now, we have another pandemic or another disease that presents itself, that introduces itself, that preys on people with disproportionate health uh, uh, conditions. So it's, it's the long game that we have to prepare for. Where, where, where is the oomph behind that? Where's the action that's gonna take place to pull people out of the environmental uh, um, health disparities that they exist in now? That, that, in my opinion, is specific to COVID, what we have to really use this moment for, um, uh, because that's an atrocity in and of itself because uh, it will happen again. Uh, and, and, and as the doctor was saying, the, some of these things might be hereditary, but a lot of them are also environmental. And those are what we should be working on. Okay. Um, we have Adam Jackson who jo joined us. Adam, introduce yourself. And then um, I'm going to tell you what we were last. Did you hear the last question? But just introduce yourself and then we'll, I'll tell you what we're talking about. Sure. Uh, peace and blessings, big sis. Uh, good to see you. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, Adam Jackson, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, grassroots political think tank here in Baltimore. I think I know all y'all. 
So I don't think I got to introduce myself too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. So, you know, we're talking about um, after COVID, after protests, kind of leveraging this moment in Baltimore City, and which I'm trying to get a male depiction of what, what would be that role? What's next for Baltimore? Before, before, we, before Adam, Adam, it's not just us in the room. People are going to see this. So introduce yourself to like the audience in general. Oh, you're right. My bad. My fault. <laughs> then, I'm, I'm, then, so, I'm so then, used to being alive. My bad. <laughs> right, right. And then answer, and then answer, uh, you know, answer, you can answer Queen's questions with that. Give us just a little bit more context for the listeners. There's po- folks that are listening in that might not be aware of what you do. So. Understood, understood. Uh, so, so I'm Adam Jackson. I'm the chief executive officer for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. We are a grassroots political think tank located in Baltimore. Uh, we do a lot of political advocacy on behalf of the black community and in the black community's interests, uh, particularly as it pertains to policy work uh, here in uh, Baltimore, but also around the state of Maryland. Uh, to answer your question about how to leverage the moment, uh, you know, part of the part of the issue is I think that you know black people when we get into these moments, I think we, we kind of tell ourselves the same, the same narrative over and over again, which is no one's doing anything, nothing has happened before, we can't do anything now, so we have to restart and throw everything out and start new, when the reality is there are already solutions at our feet. The issue is that we're, that we're not willing to do, in many cases, the, the work of building the infrastructure to sustain the change that we want to see uh, outside of this moment. And I think, um, you know, particularly on these two issues, uh, you know, COVID-19 and police accountability with COVID-19, you know, it's symptomatic of the uh, structural racism and white supremacy that we know exists, not just in the healthcare system, but it's also the fact that black people are being in- impacted and infected at uh, proportionally higher rates than other groups of people is because of the conditions of our communities. And that it requires investment in the infrastructure of our communities and the institutions uh, and our, of our communities to make sure that we can come out of this pandemic uh, uh, with a better economic outlook. I think that a lot of times that's the that's the least that's the thing we're, we're the least willing to do. We're willing to feed people to do like food programs. You know, you want to do anti-poverty programs instead of wealth building and wealth creation. And those mm-hmm. things actually solve structural problems. But I, but I think white folks have convinced black people that we need to just do another you know, another social program, invest in another white institution, another white nonprofit to service our community, and that will somehow solve the issue. Um, You know, I know early on in March or April, there was all this conversation about food, like we need to make sure people have food. But if you're talking about food security in Baltimore, like you can't solve for that with the pandemic, like, and they were like, we're running out of all this food. Like, how come we can't feed people during the pandemic? It's like, yeah, because black people are hungry. We don't have food. And you're trying to solve for it in the middle of a crisis. And so that, that's, the, that's the largest thing is that COVID-19 and police accountability, it all comes down to infrastructure. Uh, but to the, to the other piece about, you know, police violence, <clears throat> you know, in Maryland, there has been a pretty consistent agenda around holding law enforcement accountable. You know, there's been groups like mine and others who have gone to Annapolis year after year demanding accountability, uh, demanding legislation be passed to hold police accountable, uh, changing or abolishing the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights, uh, making sure that we can hold them accountable whenever they kill anybody in our community. These are things that we've consistently called for, but it's not the fact that people don't get that they want police accountability. I think that's been actually more mainstream than uh, we've given the credit for. 
The issue is that there are large mainstream institutions like the Fraternal Order of Police, like the, like and, and like uh, other large uh, uh, foundations and large corporate institutions that are in our way. And the reason why they're allowed to impede our progress is because, again, we don't have the infrastructure. The Fraternal Order of Police is essentially a publicly funded lobbying organization because even though they're a union, it's tax dollars that pay the officers that pay for the FOP to exist. And so when we go to Annapolis, they're our opposition. And every year it consistently happens. And I think people want to talk about Trump in some of this national legislation. But reality, it comes down to uh, it comes down to state and local law. Like if you want to make sure an officer goes to jail, then you have to actually support local and state legislation to change that dynamic. There's nothing that the Congress or Donald Trump can do about that. You know, they can pass a law nationally that says you can't choke a black person to death. But isn't that a damn shame? You got to pass a law that says you can't choke somebody to death. That should already be illegal to begin with. And people think that that somehow has changed. But I think, uh, you know, to kind of wrap up, it comes down to local and state grassroots political advocacy. Everything is local. All politics is local. And that we have to build the infrastructure and the ecosystem to be to help our communities thrive. And we can't rely on other people or other institutions outside of our community to do it. Hmm. Power. All right, Ray. He segue right into what you're doing with the police and um, the policing project. Way in. You muted. I got it. I got it. I'm sorry. I think what Adam said and what TJ said is right on point is it's about one changing the infrastructure that kind of orchestrates this system. So for me, it's about accountability and what we haven't done, like TJ said, is had that leadership that actually makes that their priority and shows the urgency that the community that's being impacted feels. So with things like the consent decree, where we have the sharpest tools in the shed, so to speak, as far as reform processes go, but we don't have, one, the stability in Baltimore City yet where we've been in a constant state of flux since we've actually entered a reform round. And two, we don't really have that urgency in our representation for as long as I've been doing police accountability and reform work. As we get closer to campaign time, accountability always becomes toxic and it's more about crime reduction, which is also a huge problem that we have here. So the conversation has to move into how do we transform this department and increase public safety or lower crime and homicides. And that's the piece that hasn't had a consistent focus from all parties. So you got half that want to say lock them up and you have another half that wants to kind of figure out how you lock them up and then you add in the complexity of legislation have, having to be changed in Annapolis so the, the whole paradigm of police reform in this city as well as the systemic structural failures that the city's has has kind of got us stuck in this point of repeat and repeat. 
And that's what we have to kind of prioritize and move beyond. That's what we need to strategize around. So I'm hearing strategize, I'm hearing uh, ecosystem, infrastructure change, um, politics is local. And if we want to see change at this moment, then some of those things have to in be enacted. Is that what I'm hearing, guys? Yeah, I mean, but we, the thing is, um, I mean, Ray and Adam is spot on. Like, we pay more attention to the national issues, which they have lesser of an effect on what goes on locally than anything else. It just okay. seems like it's just a sexier thing to, to talk about. But the local is where it really uh, is a big deal. The, the legislators in Maryland are a big deal, and we don't take them as such. Most people couldn't even name who their legislators are. And that's the problem because they're the lawmakers for state law. Um, the things that you might think you need in Baltimore aren't going to happen without the support from legislators around the state. Um, but but as we as we just look at where we are, we missed a moment in 2015. Like we're looking at 2020 like, OK, here's a moment. No, there was a big moment in 2015 that put a spotlight on on underserved communities that have systemic problems. And, and, and satellite trucks were in Baltimore, and it was like, this is an area that needs some attention. And then we got quickly pulled away from that because we were focused back on corruption again. And we started seeing the, the stumbling blocks of corruption. And it's like walking and chewing gum are a big problem for us. We seem to be only able to focus on one thing. We have to focus on multiple things at a time. And it's not fair for us to get distracted from the needed reforms. And people, you know, when I was on the campaign trail, I was often asked about the consent decree where you have a faction who thinks you get rid of the consent decree because it's hindering police officers' ability to police the city and, you know, some to think we need it. I said, the, 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 the proof is in the pudding. The consent decree went into effect in 2017, was negotiated under uh, SRB and former Commissioner Batts, went into effect under Commissioner Davis and Catherine Pugh. And since then, we've had four police commissioners, I think, and three mayors. So you look at all of that lack of continuity in a matter of just four years, and the one thing that's remained consistent are the reforms that are necessary under the consent decree. Had we not had the consent decree, the Baltimore Police Department wouldn't make, have made the progress that it has made um, in some of the areas, which some will argue isn't enough and isn't fast enough. But if we didn't have the vehicle of the consent decree, uh, I mean, I couldn't tell you where the, the police department would be, because as I mentioned, all of those different police commissioners and mayors, they would have had their own vision as to what they wanted under their tenure that wouldn't have had to do with the consent decree and the standards that they had to meet as a result. Hmm. Queen. Yeah. Well, um, wait a minute, Dr. Nago, give me a second. Okay, we, um, we have Brandon Wilson, our last panelist, um, our small business owner. So Brandon, um, kind of introduce yourself and um, don't mind the background noise. That's the inner city living guys. Y'all hear that? Y'all don't hear that. <laughs> All right, Brandon, talk to us. <laughs> yes, how y'all doing? My name is Brother Brandon. Um, I'm here, I'm the owner of Jumpstart Cleaning Service. We do uh, residential and commercial cleaning here in the state of Maryland. Um, <laughs> I'm also, I'm also very active in the community as far as community engagement. Um, I spent 16 years in prison 
So when I was I was released July 2018, I've been home for two years. And so, like I say, since I've been home, I'm very active as a businessman, but also very active engaging uh, men and women in the community just trying to help bring a change in their life, showing them where I was, once was, and just showing them that just like I once was, you can, you know, make that transition and basically become new. Excellent. And let me ask a question. Your cleaning service, um, is it, it's, it can do the chemical cleaning for COVID-19 and that type of commercial cleaning that people need? Yes, ma'am. We have uh, all the capabilities to do the COVID-19 cleaning. Okay. We're very active and aggressive right now doing a lot of uh, COVID-19 cleaners for uh, office buildings, churches, uh, even houses, you know. Okay. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, you can chime in anytime. Um, did you did you hear the last question? Said so you just came in. You want me to reiterate the last question for you? Yes, thank you. Let's do that for you. Um, we it's, we're talking about after COVID, after protests, of course, um, existing as as um, Black Lives That Matter. But more or less in Baltimore City, how are men going to you leverage this opportunity? that we are kind of, um, that we have due to the protest and um, the reset of COVID, how can Baltimore ascend um, through, the, through the lens of, of men in the community? Right. Well, okay. I believe that, I believe that the way forward or the path forward comes with our unity, you know, on all the different levels because um, being divided haven't got us anywhere up to this point. So I just think that we need to just come together on our commonality. Number one, that we black. Number one, and number two, that we're trying to get out of this oppressive system. And so just figuring out what we agree on, and once we figure out what we agree on, yeah. then moving about just very aggressively trying to achieve whatever purpose that we can achieve. But we gotta unite. You know, that is the main that is the main component. Like we have to stick together and we have to just organize, organize, and organize. And we gotta put our egos aside. And so I just think that if we able to do that, we could um begin moving forward. And it's not gonna happen overnight. Nothing good happens overnight. It's a process, but we just have to be willing to go through the process. Okay. All right, we had a little technical. Thank you, brother. All right, um, Dr. Cleo, come back to you. All of my life, there's been a season of opportunity of some sort that Black people have had. Excuse me. All of my life, there's been some kind of opportunity. Um, the more recent opportunities, in theory was Barack Obama as president. Um, more local alleged opportunities for black people was that it's a so-called black run city with a black mayor. Um, you're referring to, I think um, it would, might, might have been, um, what's the other's name, I don't see him anymore. Oh yeah, he's still here. It might have been TJ Smith who talked about opportunity that we, that might have, somebody, in here talk about opportunity. And then before that, 
one of the panelists talked about there's an unwillingness to do things in our community. I think it was Adam who mentioned leadership. Somebody mentioned no urgency. Uh, somebody mentioned that we don't, some of us don't even know who our legislate, legislators are. And I think that it doesn't matter what kind of so-called opportunity we have as a people if we're questioning our value as black people. If we're questioning our value, which is one of the reasons why we don't value knowing who the who legislators are, then opportunity is not really something that we can respond to if we're questioning our value as black people. And I don't think the traditional concept of leadership is the issue. For example, at the, at the risk of sounding strange, just now, supposedly, Nick Cannon offended some Jewish people. Oh. Nick Cannon was fired. We don't know who fired Nick Cannon. Did no Jewish person come out of the woodwork and say, you're fired? Jews have a collective consciousness of never again, don't mess with us. It's a collective perspective. They don't depend on a person or a leader or one individual to tell them to care about Jews. It's the way they were raised. It's the way they're conditioned. Even when they're wrong, I think they're wrong in this instance, they still have been trained to collectively have each other's back. Well, we have some work to do as a people to learn to value having each other's back and to examine why for too many of us, we second guess the whole idea of having each other's back. If we don't look at these issues from a behavioral perspective, and along with our strategies and techniques, also have strategically as a part of that work to deconstruct the cultural toxicity that has come as a result of unresolved oppression issues for generations and generations, we constantly relapse back into paralysis. We might have some great leaders saying things. I mean, there's some brilliant people I know for a fact right here on this call and who are doing some things. But, but, but people are still talking about what happens generally, which is an unwillingness to do things. Before you came, some of you came on to, the, to this conversation, TJ talked about an un, some of the people not wearing masks. And that's an unwillingness, despite the death rate that's been reported all on, all on television, for some of us to even practice self-preservation. From my perspective, on an unconscious basis, we're in question of the value of self-preservation as black people. And I think some words that we use, like the, the N-word, et cetera, bolster the implication of black inferiority, which is a traumatizing, stressing self-perspective, whether it's a conscious or unconscious perspective, that clouds our capacity to think logically. So we have to, along with our strategies and different things that we're doing, I think have a simultaneous agenda or strategy to teach us to come out of what I call the white supremacy trauma trance. Because when you're in a trance, no matter how good the recommendation is, including put on a mask, if you're in a trance, you're not fully present. You're not fully involved in your behavioral possibilities because you're in, the, in a fog. Mm. When Nick Cannon offended Jews, there was no fog. You're fired. You're gone. You're out of here. And we don't even know who, we don't necessarily know who's told him that because we don't need to know who's just somebody Jewish because Jews ain't playing that. 
I'm redund being redundant to, to reiterate my point of that this goes beyond leadership. This is the issue of cultural wide paralysis, intergenerational cultural wide paralysis. Even people who have become leaders, such as the sister that was the mayor who got put out of office because of her books or whatever, even she was caught up in some of the side effects of this paralysis where we get more involved with self because we're too cynical to think, on, think about community. Because we're in question, in my opinion, about the value of black community. And these are not conscious perspectives. These are unconscious perspectives. Some people would argue with me, and some people have argued with me until I broke some of the issues down to them and they had to say, okay, wait a minute, I think that is true for me. Once I broke some stuff down regarding why is there resistance? Why is there no local response to local issues? Why are we waiting for the sexy thing to come on when there's some things right in our local community that are problematic that we as a majority black community, in terms of numbers, have the power to, to change? I just wanted to follow up on what Doc was saying. Mm. And, you know, I can, I'm not going to speak for Ray or Adam, but all of us have been through the ringer by our own people. Yeah. And, and, and we've had people, I've had people try to tear me down that I've never even met before. And, and it's odd because it's like, man, if we actually had a conversation, you'd be amazed at how much we actually agree. Uh, every time I see Adam, I tell him how proud I am of the work that they're doing. And we don't always have to agree on everything to be proud of one another as black men trying to do something. At the end of the day, the goal is the same. We don't want to see black men dead in the city of Baltimore at the hands of police or at the hands of anyone else. Uh, we want to see opportunity for people who haven't had opportunity. We have the same vision and we all might have different ways of getting there, but we have to get into a layer of togetherness and understanding our power, just because you have Twitter, doesn't mean you use that machine to air out everything, your stream of consciousness, because we're airing out dirty laundry sometimes. We could take that behind closed doors and come out stronger together. But the device of this for trying to have a viral moment or a viral tweet or, or trying to be salacious and saying stuff is so childish and it only serves to divide the community more and divide a lot of what the progress everyone's trying to make. And we have allowed other people who, I, I mean, I, I, I laughed because I was looking at like, whether it was the protests, like who are some of these people? Like wh when did their voice become the voice of, of reason? And it's not even a voice of reason, but they have all this to say, but they're never there at the moment that's needed. And, and again, I, I just had to say that because I know I've seen and I've watched as people independently try to tear each other, uh, some of us on this call down. Um, and and it's, it's, it's pretty unfortunate because again, the more we work together and we actually sit at the table and converse, we will probably see how much we actually have in common and how we can pull our resources together to work towards that common goal as opposed to these different tracks. And it goes back to Doc's point. When you have different groups and communities that say we're one, and you ain't you come for one of us, you came for all of us. <laughs> Look at what happens. Exactly. You know, it it would be great if, you know, whatever it was we purchased the most in this city, we saw pop-ups like they building these Dunkin' Donuts with Arabs uh running them, where it was black folks running them. But we 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 seem to eat our own, man, and that's a huge problem that we still have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, actually, actually uh, I agree with you, TJ. I think um 
I think what happens a lot of the time is that, uh, to your point, there's um there's a real there's a real heavy incentive for black people to destroy each other, you know, and we don't really have to. You no, know, you can do the enemy's work for them a lot of times because it's real. It's a big incentive for us to just like only we don't even have to attack. Just put right put folks in the right position, and then they'll just kill each other. They'll they'll destroy each other. And uh, to Dr. Cleo's point, yeah, it's because of the internalized inferiority and internalized racism that drives our people to do that. Um, and you know, I've actually myself, I found myself extremely frustrated um, over the past what three months at this point, two three months, as long as these demonstrations have been happening, um, uh, because you know, it just it reminds me a lot of 2015, where a lot of the people that are now that are supposed that are these so-called community advocates, uh, these are people that only show up at that time. These are people that show up, okay, the camera is here. I have some exposure. I want to play arts and crafts on a downtown street with white people. I want to show up at the news conference and, you know, have my face on all over the television. I want to uh, publish my list of demands, even though I haven't demanded anything up until this point. You know, there's all these, there's all that. But then when it comes time, like you said, when it comes, when the moment of truth comes, when you have to actually stand up against racist institutions and stand with other black people who have been doing that already, it's like, well, you know, no, I wasn't really, I didn't come for that. You know, I came for that piece. I came for that one part. And then, you know, then people's, of course, people get all caught up in, well, I'm doing this and I'm the person that ran this and I'm the one that created this effort and I'm one that's been at the front. And, you know, kind of that classic cliche, you know, uh, egotistical, uh, I can't, there can only be like Highlander, like there can only be one, there can only be one black person that, that rises above and can actually change our community. And so I, I completely agree. I think um, we actually have to figure out how to vet uh, uh, the leaders who say that they are leading our community and figure out how to stop these imposters, these people who, who claim that they are black leaders and be able to ask them the hard questions. Because one thing I'm clear about, because I'm only 32 years old, but I, I was very clear early on that in order to be legit in the world, in a lot of this work, you have to be vetted by elders. You have to talk to elders and you have to be okay with going some places and people with all my years of experience doing what I think is important. Black people being like, man, who the hell are you? And having to constantly re-engage and be like, oh, here's who I am and here's what I do. And you tell me if it's valuable or useful to you. And I, and I can't be so full of myself that I think that I, I have risen above the conditions of my people and I'm some kind of celebrity because that's really, that's, I mean, what the hell is that? You know, that's just, that's, this is not celebrity. This is not ET. This is not entertainment tonight. This is, this is about liberate the liberation of our, of our community and destroying racism. And I think when you, when you said like having, when you said TJ, you know, we have a common goal. I think that's the problem. We people don't have a common goal. There is no common goal. There's an assumption that we have in a common goal. I mean, I would say when someone, I say me and them, me and a, a group or other folks have a common goal, it's black liberation, black freedom, destruction of white supremacy. That's my common goal. Other people's common goal is we gonna get money together, or we gonna be on TV together, or we gonna get hooked up together. And I think people be trying to exploit the genuine um, thrust of people wanting things to change to benefit themselves because again, that's what, that's what it's all about for them. So in order to really get to that, to the level where we can really transform the conditions of our community, some of these folks got to be aired out and kicked out in terms of not, not of our community, but just out of like, you can't, you cannot speak on those issues. You cannot be the person or the group or the individuals who are elevated. The community has to dictate who its leaders are. 
Because otherwise, we're just letting white folks hand people to us, and then people are out here making money off of black death and suffering just because, you know, it's the cool thing to do. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I, I, have, I have asthma. I ain't got time to be in a damn protest at this point. I'm not trying to catch COVID-19. I'm trying to be around for at least 50, 60 more years. But I have people trying to tell, convince me that I got to be out in the streets because it's like, yeah, but you, it's not connected to anything. It's not connected to anything. And, you know, people got to understand what sustainable change is, not just hop in front of these cameras. But Adam, our Ooh. community needs literacy around everything you just got finished saying. For example, when ABC, and I might offend somebody, but that's not my intention, but I'm just going to say what I feel. When ABC and CBS and CNN says your saviors, Black Lives Matters, has, has shown up, well, if Anderson, if Anderson Cooper says Black Lives Matters is our savior, then they're our savior. Now, I don't think they're our savior. I think they show up, they, they, you just got finished describing, from our concern, Adam, Black Lives Matters. But our community is, doesn't have a lot of political literacy, not because it lacks intelligence. Most of the genius in the, in the United States come from our community. Not a whole lot of the self-love come from our self-community and cultural cohesion, but capacity for brilliance is all over the Black community. But there's been a long-term campaign on self-concept, and a lot of what we're dealing with in terms of some things you talked about, Adam, is that there's an epidemic of, of the fear of irrelevance in our community. Because a lot of us feel irrelevant. We feel like we're N-words. We feel like you're an N-word. We feel like, you know, we're not relevant. So we're waiting for white folks or somebody to say, you're irrelevant. Even the whole Black Lives Matters mantra is, white folks, please let us matter. You know, my, white folks, please, you know, make us matter. I don't, I don't even deal with the mantra because the whole thing is codependent and weak from my perspective. And, and because the larger culture co-signs that because they see it as weak too, and they know it's weak, and it's part of their strategy to keep us weak, we need to have more literacy along with whatever else we're doing to get our community to understand this phenomenology that you just described. We got to teach them to be, de to be decoders of white supremacist norms in media, in politics, in so-called education, on every level of life in this country, because a lot of us are fooled into thinking that either Society is neutral, or you got a problem and, you, and you're too angry, black person. Otherwise, it's, it's a neutral society. We don't, you know what I mean about people thinking that it's really neutral? So we don't have any urgency. Somebody ever said this earlier about there's no urgency. Well, there's no urgency if people you don't care about are, are getting hurt. And we've all seen, for example, the perpetual apologies that black people have been showcase to give to white supremacists when they've done some dirt to us. Like that, like that queer, called, that dude called himself a queer in, in um, Central Park, who almost got his life taken because of this white woman, the bird watcher, y'all know who I'm talking about. And, he didn't, and, and he's not even pressing charges or, or moving on it or nothing because he don't want to mess up the hair of a damsel in distress. And you saw what happened with Bolton John's family when they were playing in the hair of their murderer. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, we cannot expect a community to act clear and take advantage of this organic common sense if there's confusion everywhere and, there, and that confusion is not decoded or deflected when we're doing the work that we're doing around trying to transform the community. Because I'm sorry, y'all, the community is confused. And the words that came out of this conversation from the very beginning, unwillingness to do things, a lack of leadership, no urgency, don't know who the legislation is, People have an opportunity they don't take advantage of. The bottom line is that you don't feel worthy of an opportunity. You're not going to take advantage of an opportunity. 
And if you've been told by Anderson Cooper, somebody else, that Black Lives Matters is your opportunity, then everybody else in your local community has no credibility, in contrast, which is completely insane. Because the people like Adam, for example, who I know more enough about his work to be able to say this without stuttering, should have more local credibility than Black Lives Matters, who's been dormant since 2016 or something like that and waited till George Floyd was murdered and here they, here they are again. And now they're making trans lives matter and everybody else's lives matter, interrupting the focus on mur the murder of black men when only 18 trans people were killed, over a thousand brothers were killed, but we're supposed to jump up and down over 18 people, which is tragedy that those people were killed. But I'm trying to let us realize how we're being snowed, how we're being distracted and manipulated. And the bottom line, at the risk of being redundant, is that our work needs to create literacy in our community and decoding capacity to see through this stuff so we can stop being distracted by it. Because that's why we're not taking advantage of opportunity, in quotes, after opportunity. Queen asks, well, you know, what do we do now? Well, there's some stuff that we should have been done done that we need to do now, which includes decoding the entrapment of white supremacy confusion embodied by black people who they select to lead us. We got to deconstruct that stuff or else we're not going to, nothing's going to change. That's it's going to be COVID-23 COVID going to come and we're going to be having this conversation. That's, 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 that's a mouthful right there. So when, when we talk about Baltimore and its micro issues, how, and we have a whole new leadership getting ready that we get ready to vote in. And um, it looks like we have a, a well, it looks like we're going to have a new mayor, um, new contract, new everything, new, new, I think all of the um, offices in Baltimore are changing. And we said part of our issue is politics and the literacy of how we apply politics. So what's going to happen next in Baltimore with this new leadership? Are, are these candidates candidates for our community? Are we going to go forward? Are we going to be able to uh, structure our police force? What is going to happen next in Baltimore City when it comes to what we're going through kind of political? I just think oh. that no, no, our savior is not going to come from this, that system. I mean, like nobody, so if we thinking that a mayor, a president, um, a city councilman, like, I believe that the change has to come from amongst the people. Like, you know, homegrown people, like, because our workers in the streets, like, the youth, like the brother said, like the doctor said, he said that they believe that they are niggas. And so they believe that going to jail and dying is the sum of their life. I was once that individual. So, you know, when they believe that going to jail and dying, that is it. Like, that's a problem. So that's manhood. We have, we have right. And so that's become, that's become the, uh, uh, you know, the, yeah, the mark of manhood or the rights of passage. Going to prison has become a rights of passage in Baltimore City. We're just going to deal with Baltimore City because like TJ said, let's deal with the local. So going to prison, getting shot has become a rights of passage. Hmm. So, like, that is a problem. So we have to have resources um, being put in the community to be able to properly teach and train these youth on financial literacy, because they believe that all they can do is sell dope. You know, and some, it's, and for some people, it's easier to get a gun than it is 
to get a job. Well, it's easier to go get a pack of drugs than it is for them to get a job. So I believe that it is the it is the uh, duty of the people of the city to hold these candidates accountable. Because like I say, if we don't have no resources in East Baltimore, if we don't have no resources in West Baltimore, like the condition is going to continue. Like I did 16 years in prison. When I came home, I'm looking at the infrastructure of the city. Like the infrastructure was decayed, dying, weeds everywhere. So this had the 16 years. So if the condition of the infrastructure was going down, then you know that the condition of the thinking of the people were going down as well. So I think that if I come outside every day, I'm saying nothing but boarded up houses. I'm saying nothing but drugs. I'm saying nothing but chaos and confusion my whole life. I began believing that this is what right is. If I'm not saying nothing else, so I began believing that this is right. This is normal. Right. So, you know, like, I think that we, so again, like, just holding them accountable for what they say they're going to do. If you say you're going you're gonna to allocate certain funds for these organizations, like, yeah, we need to see that. Because you got, and so that way these organizations can properly uh, do what they do, wherever they are like, in the city. Because there's people in different pockets all over the city putting in work, but maybe they don't have enough resources that can help them grow and advance even more. Hmm. That's a, that's a good way to look at it. Um, wow. So. And Queen, people need accountability literacy. It's no, yeah, it's no change in, in, in communities because of lack of access. That's what I'm hearing. You know, the accessibility of resources to the community is the, is the reasoning for the, a lot of the chaos we see out here in the community with young people. So if you're saying you want to hold these politicians accountable, the question is, should we harvest our own candidate, candidates? We got to bring candidates forth. Right. And I think that's we, we, we can we can't omit the steps that we have to go to because you're right. The goal is to elect people that represent our agenda. So not only do we start now with accountability for who's elected to office currently or who will be stepping in in November or December, but for real, we need to start growing our own candidates yeah. and getting them ready for when we want to actually push real systemic change. So I think in my purview, it's always going to be about consistency and persistence to actually make change happen. And I've said for years that when they redlined this city, they kind of buried us with the biggest weapon in the world because they knew we wouldn't use it. And that weapon is the vote. If we got all of our residents to a point where they believed that voting would work and they could elect the people they need to elect to get this job done, then that could actually change the paradigm in this city and a lot of cities around the, world, the country. And I think that's the first step we have to take is those of us that are engaged to a point of access to accountability for our representatives have to push that much harder 
because people really don't believe change is possible anymore. And there's a definitely a deficit of hope in our communities that change will ever come. So we have to show them that if we stay at it and we work hard, things will change. I mean, I've been doing this police and community relations thing now for 12 years. And like TJ said, I've been attacked from every possible angle you can imagine, the police, community, organizations. And just to reiterate Adam's point, this whole nonprofit complex kind of makes actual change that much harder because of the competition we have with our own people. I won't say they're our own community because they don't really live there. And we've learned over the years that the, the funding doesn't go to the most effective program. The funding goes to the best grant writers. Mm. And that's those issues where those of us that are actually on the street and providing the needed access to resources don't really have that time. We don't have that backing of the white complex and all these foundational efforts where our goal then just becomes to serve. Hmm. I hear what infrastructure would come into place if there was an infrastructure, then you can apply things to me faster and harder because you have something to go to. But like Adam said, with no infrastructure, we're just out here one or maybe three of us, we're not doing anything substantive. In the I mean, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was, I was, yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Because, um, I mean, even to the question of the, uh, the political question you initially asked about, you know, what's going to be different? We have a whole new city council, a whole new mayor. You know, we had a whole new city council and a whole new mayor <laughs> in 2016. Sure. She went to prison. <laughs> she, you know, and a lot of these younger people who yeah. were, um, who, uh, that now were, that were younger in 2016, you know, that were like the new vanguard, you know, and, and it, it, this is not to say that the Baltimore City Council that is currently in place and that some of the people who are going to be joining have not done good stuff and have not been useful, you know, and also, and to say that they are not attempting at the very least to push the needle on some things. But one thing that my one of my babas used to tell, he told me this like several years ago. He asked me, because I came to him all fire and brimstone, like I want to change Baltimore and this and that, you know, we're going to take back the city. And the first question he asked me was, are you independently wealthy? And mm -hmm. I, was like, what, I was like, what does that mean? That doesn't, that doesn't, that's not related to that. Like you don't have to have money to make change. And he looked at me like, well, who's going to pay for all the stuff you're talking about? Because you're talking about systemic change. So how are you going to sponsor the so-called black revolutionaries you think should be in office. How much does it cost to run a city council campaign? And I was, I was like, well, around like $60,000, maybe like 40 to $60,000. He's like, right. And that's like, what, a 13 member council, 14 member council. He said, you got enough money to support those people that you want on your, on the council. What about the mayor? It costs at least a million dollars to be mayor. So what are you going to do that to, to be mayor? I was like, you know what? You're right. I don't, I don't have the money. He's like, right. So you're trying to solve for a structural problem that you think being eloquent, being smart, and having all the correct arguments is good enough. And I think that's the problem that uh, these younger these younger politicians and younger elected officials have. Um, they don't have any infrastructure, and the infrastructure that is behind them, you know, are unions, traditional white mainstream corporate institutions, 
you know, the same, the same, pe- the same people who pay for every other black person to be in office. And I think that's not a shot. That's the facts. That's just, you know, if you don't have your own resources, then who, so someone has to pay for it. And to say to, and, and I think sometimes people in our generation, like, I guess what you call the millennial generation, what people say is like, well, I'm going to get in there but just because X white man and X white corporation sponsored me. Watch how I get in there and I'm not going to be accountable to those white folks. It's like, nah, Bob Embry is waiting for you to do what he said. He's going to wait. He's, he's going to make sure you do what he says. And not because not, and it's not as simple as, you know, he calls you on the phone and tells you, darky, do my bidding. That's not how it happens. It's much more subtle than that. You know, these institutions expect outcomes. And so the city council and the mayor, to the extent we can hold them accountable and make sure we hold their feet to the fire, that's what I expect out of them. I expect them to do things as the community puts pressure on them. If you ask me to sit them in a room and to come up with progressive legislation and do things that are actually going to transform the conditions of black people, you know, you know, I'm not waiting around for that. You know, I would much rather, I would much rather give them uh, the agenda, like give them an agenda that's community centered and be like, do that or else. And that's how, because otherwise you let people think, you let them come up with things. It's like, yeah, I get it. Your sponsors don't want this to happen, but you have to be forced to make it happen because you live in a black city. You are, you're an elected uh, official in a black city. So you have to do things that the community says. Um, and, and besides that, besides the money piece, a lot of these folks are not studied. People, I mean, black people are the only people on the planet that you can do. You can say you speak for black people, but never read a damn thing about black people written by black people. There's no rigor. There's nothing. It's just like, I can, I'm, it's like, I'm a leader. It's like, I'm, how are you a leader? Because I'm black and I'm passionate and I'm smart. So who said, who said that? Who said that's all you needed to do? You know, and I think that we get so caught up in, you know, I'm running for this district and, you know, I have all the correct policy proposals, but no one gave you that title. No one said that you were actually appropriate for that position. You just said so. And that's like, to me, that's really anti-black. That's like, there should, there, you can't go into a Jewish community saying I'm a leader of the Jewish community without being vetted by the Jewish community. But black people are the only group of people that let you walk up, stand up and say, I'm a leader of the black community with no one saying so. And in many cases, other people that aren't black saying so, you know, people saying that lifting up folks like a DeRay McKesson or other folks saying like, this is our leader. This is our person, you know? And I think that's, that's the problem that a lot of them are going to fall into. I think that'll be a challenge that they see when they're elected. Cause I don't think, um, I, I think a lot of intentions are really good. You know, but again, when, you know, things like Port Covington, the Johns Hopkins police force, you know, you see how, you see who people are when the stakes are high and you see where people's votes fall and how they act when uh, white folks' money is at stake. You know, I'll leave it at that. If it wasn't for the question of black people's value, Adam, none of that would be going, none of that would be, or a lot of that you're talking about wouldn't be happening. If, if, if we could all get on the same page and agree that we value and that black life value and black prosperity, black power, black political capacity matters because we black human beings who have not had that historically in this country and we're going to take it and have it because we are worthy of it. We would have to have this second guessing and all this crazy stuff because you just got finished saying, if I'm interpreting your words correctly, that there's, there, there, there are white appointed black people who come into the community and they get resourced sometimes to look like a leader. And here we are with a, so, a so-called leader who has no track record or capacity to be a benefit to black people. Well, we care about black people and we, and we are literate about that phenomena 
and more of us were, and we were trained to successfully value black people, that stuff wouldn't work. Right. They, people go, who are you and what literally have you done? Not what conceptually or what did some white boy write, do put in a glossy photo to say you did, in, in very relaxed states going, what, what have you done? Because we need to not beat, beat each other up, even when people need to get beat up. It's not a good optic. So we asked them, what have you done? What's going on? Anyway, we need to have a meeting like this that ain't on tape, too. Well, yeah, this, this is the talk. This is not the strategium. So it, it, those are two <laughs> different movements. So we're having the talk. Not but I'm just saying that because the first thing I said earlier before the conversation started, I talked about silos and how we need to do some collaborative strategic work. Absolutely. Because that, power is not individual. Power is collective. It is. It is. It definitely is. So let me, let me pose another question to, you, to, to, to my men. Now, Baltimore has the issues to me that are grassroots. And um, it is very most, everyone using it on this call, they're doing grassroots work. Grassroots to me is the, the it's, it's like the gateway to the healing of Baltimore and then access to the resources, legislative policies change. So there's, there's to me like this hierarchy of what Baltimore needs. And it starts with grassroots organizations. So from henceforth, with this nonprofit com complex problem we have in Baltimore City, how are we gonna be able to move forward and, and solve some of the real issues from henceforth with all of the leverage that I think we have as black people? You guys understand that question? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Everybody quiet. Let me introduce John P. John? I'm John Comer. I'm uh, I was late for an emergency. I apologize, but um, uh, run an organization named Architects of Justice. Uh, but at the end of the day, I am a uh, community organizer to the core, uh, grassroots, um, and have uh, been able to be a part of some great work here in Baltimore that's pushed Black folks forward uh, through organizing in public housing. Um, organizing with uh, ex-felons to get voting rights back, um, as well as something that led to, you know, a $9 million settlement for women in public housing years ago. So um, I'm just glad to be here. Okay, okay. So you running a grassroots organization. Um, Baltimore has micro issues that can, has to be addressed, and most of it is grassroots because we understand more or less the people. So from henceforth, um, how we, once we get out of these restrictions and, and we see Baltimore um, is changing. I see everything has stopped but construction. I see everything being constructed around Baltimore, um, the, the roads, Hopkins, uh, but the people and the neighborhoods are still decaying. So what is the answer? What's the next answer for, for, for Baltimore City and our community? Jump into uh, that. Well, I think the key is uh, to continue to engage the people. So we, we got to recognize that what we do on social media or in our quote-unquote silos or whatever that case may be, 
still brings the same players to the table. So if we're actually going to promote systemic change, our strength comes in our numbers. So we have to be the, pe the people that our communities trust. And we have to build that relationship. It's kind of on us to do what we can to educate our people about this process to get them engaged, especially in a police reform paradigm where, like everyone said, there's a historic distrust in policing in our community. But we have to continue to talk to these people, engage these people, present whatever opportunities, legislative or resource, that they can actually influence and do what we can do to show them once again that these changes can happen, but it's going to take all of us. Because once again, we put on a good uh, forum in this type of format, but how many unregistered voters are on the Zoom call? So those are the populations we should start focusing our energy on now while everyone's train of thought is focused on uh, abolishing sy systemic racism and holding police accountable and all those things that we as organizations fight for now is an opportunity to educate more of the populace that's been impacted by this forever to actually get involved to push for real change. And, and building, building better communities starts with building a more educated community as well. And if we look at how we educate our kids, we have to look at educating our children differently than we've been educating them. Um, one of the things that's come up multiple times on the, on the, um, on the call here today is, 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 the, is that independence that, uh, uh, that freedom, that, that generational wealth, that opportunity. And we aren't necessarily teaching kids as they graduate high school how to be on that path to generational wealth. Uh, kids aren't graduating with financial literacy to really understand the value of a dollar and understand what it means to, to go to work. Um, they aren't understanding how to file their taxes, how to maintain their credit score, and, and the long-term impacts that that can have on them, where you see other communities that do this and do this well, and they're able to pass down real estate from generation to generation, which builds that generational wealth. But moreover, a city that's 63% black has to churn out more black millionaires. Uh, we don't have enough black millionaires, and we have to specifically invest in black business in the city. I mean, a carve-out of the budget should be dedicated to black business in and of itself so that you can increase that wealth in our city of black people. You can look at cities like Atlanta and the Atlanta metro area and see how that grew and how black millionaires grew as a result. Now, it does take a, a lot of, uh, um, um, you know, you're gonna put yourself at risk as a politician by taking such approach because you can look back on the mayors of these towns that did it and their political careers didn't last long or didn't go without a, a whole bunch of, um, you know, adversaries. But that's part of being bold and making decisions that are good for future generations to really disrupt this cycle of what the communities have fallen into. The, 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 there's nothing different in most of these communities than was there 20 years ago or 30 years ago. 
it's the inaction over many generations and beyond one mayor, that last mayor, and, and to that earlier point, I probably should abstain from even commenting on the uh, political process, but I do just have to say, because you said we have a change, I mean, I just have to make it a rhetorical question. Do we really have a t change? Um, everybody who's uh, taken over has been in elected office for more than a dozen years or more than a decade, basically. So, I mean, I don't know if we have a change. I mean, we're, we're changing some seats and titles around, but we're not really changing a mindset. Um, so, but, but, but it's not any individual, regardless of who the individuals are. It's the collective individuals. They, 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 and just having gone through this, and this goes back to Doc's earlier point, there's a known thing in Baltimore politics. There's the Jewish vote. <laughs> there's the, the Jew, you know, you, you got to go to the kingmakers to get the Jewish vote. They're voting in these blocks to get the agenda. And, and, and it's not coincidence that you go and cross over Northern Parkway and the world changes. It's not by coincidence, it's by design. But we have to understand the power we have and, and, and start to unite and fight for what we want, what we need in order to better our communities. And I'll close with this, just um, something that, that, that stands out to me. And Ray might know a little bit more. It's outside of his uh, uh, area, uh, but down in um, West Baltimore, the old ice house down there and um, uh, right on Fol uh, Mulberry there. Uh, burnt down last year again, but it burnt down earlier back in 2004, I think was uh, one of the big fires that they had there. And it's been vacant ever since. And there's a lot of vacant homes along Mulberry Street as you, your gateway to downtown Baltimore. And I look at that area and I'm scared of the word gentrification. And a developer was eyeing that old ice house to make it an amphitheater and a beer garden. And I said, who the hell going to the, who, who, who are they marketing that to? And I said, are they letting this community die so they can mow down all of these homes to throw up some trendy uh, condos that mm -hmm. gives you a gateway straight downtown? Mm -hmm. and, and this is part of the problem where we have to demand more and want more from what we are left to live in and exist in. Hmm. Good observation. Whew. That's a great observation. All right. Brother Brandon, you want to jump in that? Yeah, I guess when I say that, uh, when he was talking about the education, because, um, I, I, you know, I had the blessing to be in some of these schools. And I mean, like, you know, in the state of Maryland, we only really have, like, two schools in the top 50 hmm. of schools in the state of Maryland. When you look at the school system, right, the, the top five schools are in, Montgomery County, you know, so when you say, okay, the top five schools in the state of Maryland, we're talking about high school in Montgomery County, right? So we know in Montgomery County, that's one of the richest counties in the state of Maryland, right? I don't, I don't know if it's the richest, but it's one of the richest. So, okay, they, they have the top five schools, their income is high in that area, so their schools are going to be good in that area, which also says that their teachers are going to be uh, the best because you're not, going to, you're not going to bring a teacher who don't do so well into a high-income, high-rating school. So what we have in our community is where as though our children are receiving uh, inferior education, so to the point where as though 
in Baltimore City, and I'd have been in multiple schools, they are allowed to have earphones on in class. I believe this is a problem. Like, like you know, just the fact that you are able to have earphones on in the class, and this is throughout the whole school. So I'm just saying, when we talking about education, like, like I think that that should be just that's just simple as like everybody should agree. Children should not be able to come to school and have earphones on in class. Like that's a problem because now in the era that we in, they on their phones on social media, so they line them more on social media that's bringing them down than what they should be learning in the education. So to the point where though they don't even value education, they don't even see a need for education because in their mind they don't even think nothing about themselves anyway. So you know, I I just wanted to chime in. You know, just on the education. Piece. I did not know that you could have had earphones in a classroom. Hey, I mean, um, think when when I was in school, I remember. Um, so I was in middle school back in the eighties, and and um, I remember when you know pagers were a, a drug dealer thing. You either a doctor or a drug dealer, <laughs> and you couldn't bring a beeper to Baltimore City Public Schools, and it was called expulsion. You got expelled out of the entire city school system because it was synonymous with drug dealing. That's how serious it was back then. So today, it blows my mind when I go to visit schools or what have you and how many kids have cell phones every day. I mean, headphones is like, that, that is what it is. But the amount of cell phones and the teachers basically making deals with them, I'm not going to take it, but you got to turn it off. It's just such a, a distraction that you know we're we, we're even bending with the rules, and we have gotten under this presumption of the parents having this need to contact their kids if it's an emergency. Well, I, again, I'm not old-fashioned. I don't want to pretend to be, but there's still a method and a way that you can get in contact with your child if there's an emergency, and they don't need that added distraction when a teacher's trying to teach 25 kids in a classroom of having a cell phone. It's it's it's. It's pretty unfortunate that some of the rules have gotten so lax that we introduce these distractions and they can happen. Because if you don't have a cell phone, you won't have earphones. So right, right, <laughs> if you basically. Have a cell phone, you get rid of a lot of ancillary issues. Maybe they have a Walkman or something. I don't know. Oh, Lord. <laughs> no. You went to a Walkman. <laughs> but guess what? Yeah, I'm sorry. They, 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 yeah, like you say, distracted. To the point where it's though, if there's a fight or if there's a problem going on on one floor, they communicate and saying, listen, we ready to meet up in um, such and such stairwell. Like, yeah, like this is going on and, you know, multiple schools in this. So, I mean, like, that's why I say, like, just, yeah, like, that's that's a problem. Like, it's, they should not be able to come to school and be able to sit in class with their cell phones and earphones. You know, that's like, that's just a big distraction. So, you know, that, that right there, that could change so much. If they just would not be allowed to have that in the place, that could change. That could change a lot. But guess what, brothers and sisters? Even here in Baltimore, let alone in D.C., Tulsa, Oklahoma, Central Los Angeles, we used to be way more, as a people, focused, way more respectful, way more unified, May way more collectively prosperous. And I remember when I was a kid, 
everybody in the neighborhood knew each other's children and took care of each other's children. I'm not being, I'm not giving fantasy land here and making it, I'm telling you what's, what we used to do. And no matter where we went in this, in, in the society or across country, what's up brother? What's up sister? What's up cuz? Which was short for cousin. And we had more of an affinity for each other. I mean, there was exceptions to everything, but I'm talking about generally. There was a tip of the hat when you saw another brother. Now, and I've literally tested this, you lucky if somebody looks at you in the eye if you happen to be going in opposite directions while you're walking down the street. Now, instead of just complaining about what we do, I want to reintroduce the fact of, of what we used to do. We, a lot of our young people have no idea how respectful, relatively speaking, we used to be of each other. And the reason that there's such thing as so-called HBCUs in this country, some very, very old, is because black people value education. That's why there's a Morgan, et cetera, because black people do value education. So we're very, non, very nuanced people with all kinds of gems and great possibility, in fact, in our community. But we're constantly given a commercial of how horrible we are. And we have internalized that commercial. Brandon talked about some of that leading to his life that he once had in terms of seeing no value in who he was and other people like him. And our work toward problem solving has to deconstruct and crystallize that, not just as a complaint, but as an educational platform to let us to so, so we can look at how we've been and be real clear about what happened that interrupted that, that got us where we are now. And we keep talking in abstracts about the problems of black people, instead of looking at what we have done what we, and what we can do, we stay in this funk of low expectations. Hmm. But as black people, we've done some great, I'm, I'm talking about not great things for, just, for everybody in a generic sense but great things for us. We all know about Black Wall Street, blah, blah, blah. So we need to reiterate and highlight these things that we've done so we can reawaken that possibility in Black people because we used to be more politically aligned. We used to know who the legislators were. We used to be the legislators. But there's been an interruption. Some of that looked like crack. Some of that looked like institutional white supremacy in schools. Some of that looks like taking things away to ensure that they're in chaos. And we're in that chaos. But a lot of our young people don't even know that we're in chaos because we think it's just black culture. Mm. We don't even have nothing to contrast it with because we don't know about another reality, which we need to know about. So so-called leadership or so-called forward motion activity toward the goal of transformation and helping the community needs to be a literacy process on us understanding where we have been and where we can be again, and what literally happened that took us off course. Because some things took us off course. I mean, I don't have time to get into all of it, but when Adam talked about people coming in who'd never done anything, suddenly becoming these great leaders and stuff like this, or getting all this play as leaders, that's part of what was done. You know, the black leader decoy, the decoy effect, which is, which is a literal strategy to keep us in chaos and following the wrong folks, so we can never go from stage one to stage two or wherever the next stage is. We keep staying in stage one of chaos because there's always a, 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 we think we live in a neutral society. So the whole idea of interrupters doesn't even compute because we are conditioned to think we live in a neutral society or white Jesus is going to come take care of it at some point.
And that's a whole nother conversation that's gonna keep us here a long time, but it's a central issue. Some of us think it's sacrilegious to complain about white supremacy. Mm. That we're going, that, and this is, again, this is all unconscious. And I'm not just talking smack. I've literally, as a, as a therapist and as a behavioral, a behaviorist, if you will, done interviews and, and spoken to black people about these issues. I remember I did a workshop in, in California where this woman, she was 60 years old and she was a minister. And when she got finished with the course, which was a two and a half day course, she actually said in front of the class, now I feel like I have permission to care about black people because I was trained to think that it was racist to prioritize black people's issues, but that was wrong. And she had never articulated that before. She articulated that because the workshop led her into a place where she actually started talking, you know, going into this, what do you call it, consciousness, stream of consciousness where these things came out that she didn't know what was going on with, with her. And there's a lot of black people with issues happening with us that we have never articulated. And because we haven't articulated them, those, that lack of articulation is a block to functional behavior as a people. We gotta do some unblocking y'all or else we're gonna have COVID-23, COVID-28, or whatever the hell is the next number gonna be, and we're gonna have these same conversations. Wow. We got to unpack where we once were, relatively speaking as a people, with Tulsa, places in Florida, even here in Baltimore, in this very city, there were, at, there were groups of black people who worked together and who were more united. In this very city, you heard of the Archbishop, the Arch Social Club? Mm-hmm. Have everybody, everybody heard about that? The oldest one in the country. Well, that social club was built at a time of black, more black unification and more collective expectation of black possibility that was a cultural norm for us that we now, in too many cases, are just the opposite of that in terms of black expectation. Black expectation is low. And I'll close my tangent by saying it, and it ain't a coincidence. It's part of a strategy that has worked. These things are strategic. This is not, this is not a neutral country. And this is not a country, this is not a city dealing with a neutral politic. I mean, somebody already mentioned this, the Jewish blocks and how they take care of business. And how they have an eye on some place that somebody already mentioned for beer and something that they're focused on and feeding into the possibility of current community chaos so they can go on there and do what they're going to do. And this has happened all over the country, even in Harlem, in Compton, the South Central Los Angeles, where I'm from, which was known as a historically black community, you can, see, you can now see two white men walking down the street with their poodle in South Central Los Angeles. So you're laughing at T.J. Smith. <laughs> But I'm just telling y'all, and y'all gonna see people walking down uh, St. Paul and walking down Calvert uh, up in this area, two white boys with their poodle. Oh, you already see that. Uh, like um, like Green Mount, you know, Station North as they call it now. And I, 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 um, I look at it like, wow. But no, your point when you said the two poodles, I was in New York. <laughs> And um, I happened to uh, meet a guy working at a shop in um, Manhattan. And I think I had my Orioles cap on or whatever. And he asked me, he was up from Baltimore. And we started talking. And he lived in Harlem. And he said, um, I said, I haven't been up to Harlem in a while. 
And he said, man, you see Fufu walking down the street with a little poodle and all. And I said, wow. He talked about how it changed. And, you know, that's that gentrification that we don't want. And you look at a city like D.C. And I joke about people because D.C., Baltimore got a chip on his shoulder, but D.C. got a chip on their shoulder big time. I said, most of y'all never even lived in the city of D.C. Y'all lived around D.C. And really now, D.C. is no longer majority black. And they've squeezed and suffocated the middle class right up out of that city. And that's not the type of Baltimore that needs to be built. I think we've learned a lot over the years of failed strategies. We can't, I mean, the, the whole term housing projects should be done with. We should be, we should be past that. And we aren't past that in Baltimore. We still have housing projects. And we know we're putting low-income people on top of low-income people. And that's not a fair way um, to create community. And that's, that's, that's part of the disruption of the process where we have to build affordable housing and fair housing for everyone that's inclusive and not put people with similar circumstances on top of each other. And that goes both ways. I mean, exclusive uh, communities that, you know, that cause these problems if a black kid in a hoodie is walking through them and, and that this exclusive community says, you don't belong here we're creating a problem that way as well. So it, it, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a big conversation, but there are opportunities with this blank slate that is Baltimore. And I say blank slate because of all of the redevelopment that needs to happen, all of the investment that needs to happen to create the community that we all want to see, which is an inclusive community. And the question obviously is how do we get there? It's connecting inclusive. those dots. It's not the continued conversation about it. It's the actual policy of making it happen and making it a reality. That's well, I don't want to see an inclusive community. John, you want to jump in? John, give us something. I mean, um, you know, I just, there's so many levels to this. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I, I can curse, right? Because I, <laughs> you want to go? Right. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just so, it's so many levels to this shit that, um, I think what everyone is saying is right. I think like figuring out the order of it and like the most important steps and beginning with people right where they are in their communities, um, never taking our eye off of um, how we've been manufactured. And so like any trauma, any outburst, any disrespect, much of it can go back to the manufacturing of our of our people we've been engineered in so many different ways um yep. so like kind of starting with the understanding um and also you know i don't necessarily so i don't necessarily believe that by putting um people who don't make a certain amount of money together that it's all these issues and and and, and that's where i come from by saying we must remember that this has been engineered because there's no coincidence that the genius brother and sister that you know that came from your community ended up with an addiction. And, you know, at times when they're clean and sober, you still see that, that, that brilliance in them. You still experience that. So, you know, certain zip codes, certain neighborhoods were targeted to take um, the potential leaders or the people who were going to be leaders away from them. Um, so I think that's important for us to remember, like when we're out organizing, dealing with folks. And then sometimes it's, go it's going to take like some real hard 
as loving organizing um, and, and, and whip us up out of a victim mentality. Because I think that, you know, I'm seeing all of these slogans with Black Lives Matter and all of that. And like some of the slogans that we're promoting are weak as hell, especially compared to the Black Power Movement. So to me, it kind of speaks to trying to keep people in a victim stance. You, yep. Like you, you, you will never hear me say, please stop killing us because the folks that are killing us don't understand that language. There's another kind of language, language and action that has to be taken against those people. Please stop killing us is some of the weakest shit I've ever heard. Right. And, and, and like rest in peace to all the brothers and sisters who um, died from asphyxiation. Oh my God. Died from being suffocated and choked. But like, I don't think it's cool for us to be walking around with shirts that saying I can't breathe, right? Like, um, I'd rather put on a shirt saying I'm going to motherfucking breathe and I dare you to stop it, right? Like, so at the end of the day, like those of us who are in the community have to pull yeah. together with the yeah. strength that we have and go mm -hmm. uplift the folks in our communities who don't have that, who've been fighting who who have given up, who uh, end up disenfranchised because that's a part of the plan, um, you know, who don't see any value in this. Um, one more thing. I also just want to say um, those of us who have upward mobility have to recognize we have a bit more upward mobility than our people. So when it comes to black businesses, like so at the end of the day, you ride down Pennsylvania Avenue and you can look around and you can point out what's not there which is a sign of what needs to be there. And if you have upward mobility, that means that you could be putting a store right here for your people. Because to me, it's not just good enough to support black business. It's about supporting black community-minded business. Because that black business could be doing the same thing that that Korean business does, come into the community, make the money, go home somewhere in the suburbs, and not put any money back into that. And so businesses have to be organized because at the end of the day, the folks in Annapolis, the folks in, in D.C., they listen to money, right? And so if we organize our money, and sometimes, and so like I, I almost feel like there has to be sectors of organizing. So I don't want to discount any, any portion of organizing. So there are the, the folks who are working on trying to fix this whole nonprofit industrial complex. But then there's um, folks who are, you know, working to get grants and, and pass more policies from the government. But then I also believe that you have to have people that look at the economy and look at where we are and say, you know what, we're not necessarily going to reach um, and compete in this economy. We need to go back to bartering in some of our communities, exchanging services for services, goods for services. And that helps to also build the relationships in our community. Like, so at the end of the day, we talk, uh, we see a lot of bad things about Baltimore, but I tell you one thing, for a city that, that, that is, is, is coming with uh, 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 so much violence, that, that system of hacking, that says a lot. The fact that there's so much going on, but I still trust you to come pick me up on the side of the road and I'll give you my money to take, take me wherever, that should be a catalyst for us to stand on and look at and realize this shit can work because that system of hacking is organized in its own way, right? It's organizing and it's thriving. 
It's not dying, it's thriving. So you already have a system in place to organize off of because people can look at one another and say, I need a ride. And it's not, I'm not going to get in the car with you. I don't know you. It's not that. It's not that. So like looking at that and another thing, uh, West Side Shopping Center, I had, I, had, I had just come back from a trip outside the country and I was somewhere, I, I, I was somewhere and I saw um, uh, folks from West Africa lined up on the sidewalk. And one person was there selling uh, like maybe beans and had a, a bucket of The next person was selling like fabric. The next person, and they were all lined up. Now, when I came back from, from Africa and I went to the West Side Shopping Center, now this was in the parking lot, right? Now, like, you know, it's not supposed to be happening, but what I saw was the spirit of our ancestors. It's a brother out there in this parking space fixing cars. It's a brother out there selling grapes from his truck. It's a brother out there, you know, and it was so on and so on. And so we still, we have to like connect with who we are as a people and recognize that we don't do this shit the way that these white folks do. And we got to be comfortable with how we do things and build from there and stop, you know, like not trying to mimic anybody who we, we have to be who we are and build from there. And it's naturally in us. Right. But until we once we start to conform and go through these structures and even some HBCUs, you'll come out whiter than you was black when you came in. Right. So like even some of these structures have been co-opted by dollars because dollars are a white supremacist uh, 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 method. You know, money is dirty, period. Right. In this country, it's all it's all blood money. So I just think that like really like looking at and trying to pay attention to what we see and where we are. And like, there are a lot of beautiful things, which I know y'all know, I'm not, I'm, I'm speaking to the choir that are going on here. And I just think that system of hacking is one of the greatest things that we could build off of. It shows that that there's, a, there's an economy to be built our way. But what end up happening is they try to illegalize the shit because technically it's supposed to be illegal, right? Um, but yeah, you know, that's where I am. That right there, I n never even looked at hacking like that. That is genius, the way that you uh, put that. It's genius what we're doing. Oh, right? absolutely. All doing. right, guys, jump in. Who's next? Anybody got else on that topic or are we going to move on? Anybody else want to swim into that? I just want to add that Eric Garner died doing what he suggested. I agree with him. And, and, but I'm, what I'm responding to is him saying that they're making it illegal for us to barter and operate the way that we want to operate. And that's what Eric Garner was doing when the cops hit him up and murdered him. He was hand, giving cigarettes to people who wanted cigarettes right. for, for a good price. Right. Yeah, even Baltimore City is establishing a mm -hmm. certificate you would need, like, you know, the women who sell dinners and people who sell food, and then they, they're establishing a certificate that you would have to get to do that in the streets of Baltimore or to sell a dinner out your house. So everything that it seems that the people create, they co-op and, and make it something big, something that they, we have to fight to do. And these are things we traditionally do to try to make it in, the, in a society where we're being oppressed. Yes, so <laughs> it seems like the walls keep coming. Now Big Mama can't make money off the dentist for, for the babies. It's, it's always- We well, see Queen, we don't gotta, I'm gonna cuss once just to make my point. <laughs> Well, inspired by Mr. Connor. We don't got to take this shit. Oh, okay. We don't. 
we don't we don't we don't have to tolerate none of this. Particularly if we come from a collective perspective. That's why I brought up that's why I brought up uh what's his name? Um the dude who was fired and got hired after he apologized and grovel. What's his name? Um Nick. Nick Nick. Nick. I brought, that's why I brought him up as like the Jews said we ain't having it. They didn't they they didn't they didn't come to him and grovel. They said, Oh, we're not having it. Your ass is fired. And we could not have it too. Brother Cleo, that's two curses, bro. Two. My, but, but my point is that we as a people cannot have it. We can say, particularly in a, in a, in a city that's damn near 70% black, we can say, hell no. Mm -hmm. But we have to go get past some stuff simultaneously to the other work for us to get enough clarity to have the enough self-love and respect to say, hell no, we're not going, we're not going to have it. But I'm going to close my close, close by saying, it's not true that we don't have infrastructure either. That's, that's a myth. We do. And what, what Connor just talked about in terms of. Comer, Comer. That, that, I'm, so, I'm sorry, brother. I want to get it right. Okay, Comer. John P. Comer. I want to get it my all man. right. My man. I'm sorry, brother. Comer. <laughs> <laughs> he talked about hacks and fat hacks that are set up in a, in a way that we, we trust them because of how they're promoted. Though so we get in a stranger's car that could be the hair side stranger, we don't know, <laughs> but there's a system put in place where we actually trust it. Well, we, when, when we, I've been to West Africa and East Africa, I go to Africa all the time. Matter of fact, I'm getting homesick because of this damn COVID thing and I can't travel because I'm always going before COVID came. But we could do anything we want to do, particularly in predominantly black cities where we have numbers. But it's the same kind of internalized black inferiority myth and white superiority myth that had us have too many of us acting like the Zanians or the so-called South Africa deal when there was three white folks running the lives of three billion black folks. Mm. Because we're, we're believe, we've been trained to believe the hype intergenerationally. That's why I brought up white Jesus, because some of us unconsciously think that to actually challenge whiteness, we'll get mad and we'll fight, but then we'll relapse, which is why even before the Panthers, we were fighting against police brutality and we still fight in the same fight. Because something always happens that disrupts our capacity to win that fight and go to the next thing. And we have the power and the capacity and the numbers and the people to do it. But we don't have enough strategies to do it. Well, we frankly, we do have strategies. I mean, what, what John P. Comer just said was talking about the strategies and things that we built that are built inside of us that we dismiss because we're the source. Black people are the source. And this is, that part is not natural. That part comes from the conditioning and the interruption that makes us second guess our possibilities on the people. So I'm gonna be redundant and reiterate that we're gonna keep on relapsing to talking about why we can't get past stage one until we deal with those mythologies and pathologies and, and myths in particular that has us questioning our possibilities. Therefore, we don't get beyond stage one. We got to make that part of our work or else we're gonna have the same complaint, like I said before, until we get to COVID-99. If, if, if we become organized, we can do anything. And so anything. at the end of the day, um, if there's one community that has enough contacts, if there's a, if there's a carryout on the corner and they, they, don't support, um, they don't support the community, ideally, we bring somebody along from the community that's been getting training and running the business to 
we we stop patronizing the carry out and when that car and then we uh we we help to place somebody from the community to replace it with some food another food place so that we stop going to the carry out that carry out ends up leaving and then there's a black business in place and because we're organized we are able to have those face-to-face -face conversations to break the mentality of self-hatred on why you need to support this black business rather than this other business that doesn't contribute to the community and so like at the end of the day it you know it really just comes down to reach being able to confront just like you know i want white folks to confront their racist white family members we have to confront the self-hatred black folks that's out here right because if we allow like the reason why we've gotten to the point where or one of the reasons why we've gotten to the point to where things seem so hard is, is because self-hatred has fest has festered it's made a home in our communities and it's gone unaddressed and so now we have to get tough with that self-hatred shit it's not even necessarily getting tough with the person it's getting tough with that 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 conditioning right? right and because you know like we a lot of times we we say we say hateful things and don't even truly realize like we're kind of saying it against one another and and of course we all need to be able to be held accountable um but man like we really we really got to address the self-hatred in us we got to man up with that we got to look that in the face and honestly like it's my generation probably won't see the promised land like we envision it. But at the end of the day, I was having a conversation with someone earlier today. We have to be willing to sacrifice this shit. Like I might, you know, we might, we might get killed out here doing this work, but you know what? Like my son, my, his grandson, granddaughter, like it needs to be a different world for them. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, we just have to get comfortable with the idea of sacrifice. Like we just really, for us um before we are actually put into that that scenario and not asking for it because you know it's just like it's just like hey you need to humble yourself before life does it for you it's the same thing because when when life comes through and humbles you're not gonna like it so like it's best that like we take heed and uh try to do what we can as far as addressing this self-hatred figuring it out in each other because honestly like people have to see that value have to see value in supporting that black business up the block and then if that happens that allows another black business to come in with some uh with something that doesn't compete with that business and then we can build black wall street all over again and so like i don't i don't think we should even talk about black wall street like it's a thing of the past like honestly if you ride through certain communities black wall streets are still there we just haven't labeled it as black wall street there are still thriving black communities. We just don't really talk about them that much, right? And so, like, I think that in the process of envisioning and working towards something, we must remember all of this stuff is not gone. A lot of this stuff still exists, right? It just wasn't labeled. It wasn't labeled Black Wall Street. And Tulsa, Oklahoma wasn't the only one with the Black Wall Street. Right. You know? And when you got a, a city full of black folks like Baltimore, man, F Black Wall Street, like, what about just 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 black this whole thing is just black we can like it's man black wall street aiming for a black wall street might be a little less ambitious with 60 some 
plus percent black people. You know what I'm saying? We we should have most of the city honest, right? But you know, they 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 traffic doping guns in here for that exact reason. They traffic doping guns in here for that exact reason to keep the uh, the division. You know. Well, we, we we hear a lot of the ills, but I want to hear some solution, brothers. Um, Baltimore needs solutions, and um, what I hear from you guys involves a collective. You got to have a, a strategium. You got to have a place to 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 build outside of um, virtual spaces. You you have to um, coalesce, have alliances amongst each other. Or I'm looking at all, all my brothers here. We got Ray, TJ, Brandon, Adam. I see all of you guys. John, do you guys talk on a regular basis? How are we going to coalesce the box? We need this. Are we going to come together and, and build that? We talk about what we need, but can we actually do it? Are we actually going to do it? Because it does take sacrifice. But it takes also us coming together and being intentional about sacrifice. So I want to hear from that, guys. Let me hear some solutions and, and, and what we're going to do with that. I want to start with you, Ray. I want to hear solutions and moving on. So I, I, overall, I'll say yes, we do, we do converse. And we do come together when it's time to go to Annapolis and things of that nature where now it has to be opening those tables up to the communities where we've been in the room together a hundred times, but we need to get all of us into the rooms with the people that are actually trying to make this happen. And then there's another thing where we have to make sure that everyone recognizes what role an individual has in processes where it's kind of peculiar. Cause I had a, an elected official kind of say that they doubt my sincerity these days because I haven't been to Annapolis in the past two years to fight against policies. But really, in Baltimore City, my role holds a federal appointment where I can't really do that anymore. I do have implied influence. And I think a collaborative one has to start with that strategy where we figure out who fills what component to get the greater thing done. And that becomes a important piece. And when you're dealing in these organizational structures, there's always this piece of, is it ego? Is it competition? Is it funding where I think to Adam's point, we gotta have to kind of build that infrastructure so we can actually sustain each other in the work that we're already doing to that contributes to the broader systemic change. Okay. I hear that. All right, TJ, jump in there. Um, you know, I think that everyone plays their role and I don't think that it's 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 anyone's position to put down another person's position of what they're working on or trying to work through. Again, I think that um, there's a lot of agreement as to what direction that we know we need to go, what some of the issues are and, and that need to be addressed. And there are different 
uh, people who, who focus specifically on that. And that's necessary. Um, but really, I think one of the very first comments that was made and, and as this conversation began is accountability. And it's accountability and follow-up of where are we? Um, you know, just I'll use it for instance. Um, I actually did an interview, I think yesterday or the day before, on the police departments. Um, they put out a one-year um, look at the crime plan or what have you, but then they hashed out the last six months or what have you. And I said, well, where's the city's one-year um, version of this? Um, we need to see what they've done because if, if we're once again putting the mindset that the problems that we have in the city are going to be solved through the police department's one-year um, you know, strategic plan look back, then that's going to just perpetuate the problems we have. Where is the city's involvement of what they've done over the last year to improve the conditions in the community? So I believe accountability is a strong part of that and being able to monitor and evaluate and, and adjust where grant funds are going, where resources are going, and, and what's happening. And that, that is, I think, really the key part, because with accountability, you at least have a group and a collective that understands what's happening versus it, it was done under the cover of darkness, and now here we are a year later or a new election cycle later, and we're arguing about the same things and there's been no progress. So we, we, we can't let just the sexy moment be the moment, you know, the issues exist. And I think, you know, it was Adam who brought up earlier, um, the food uh, uh, insecurity issues that exist, they, they've been existing. Um, again, we've had this moment of COVID that's exposed these things. So a year from now, let's just say we get a cure for COVID, COVID goes away a year or two from now. If the food insecurity issues still exist in those same neighborhoods, what really have we done and what really did we learn and where is the accountability to address those specific issues? So getting together to, to do that, but continuing for, for each of us in our own way, using our, quote, influence for advocacy is what has to happen to draw more and more people in, to get more and more people involved, to understand how their voice uh, can be used for power. Okay. Brandon, you want to jump in there and... Yes. Um, I be, <clears throat> you know, they, I, was, I had read an article before and it was talking about the, the difference between a group and a great group. Never saying that um, great groups put a dent in the universe. You know, so that's what makes them extraordinary versus ordinary. And, and what that just means is that, like, you know, you want to have different groups of individuals, different men, you know, that's doing different things around the city. But when you look at the human body, right, the arm don't say he's better than the head or the leg don't say he's better than the toe. You know, like the human body works for the preservation of that body. And everything works together as a unit. And so I just think that that's where we got to be. So for me personally, because I'm a new guy, you know, people saying, who is this guy? I'm a new guy. <laughs> but for me, like, so my goal is to just begin learning who these different men is. You know, like I was in prison watching TJ on the news. 
you feel me? Now I'm on the Zoom with them. So that's just, you know, and, and, and I always watched them. You know, I, I mean, and I, and, and I, I, I didn't never develop an opinion of them one way or the other, but I just always watched He's a black man on TV, you feel me, in the police force. So I'm just saying like that. So for me, like, yeah, that's, that's where it's at, forging bonds and begin teaching, like, don't pass judgment on the individual based on what you, you know, because you don't know a person, like you said, like, you don't know a person. So we begin passing judgment based off of what we think, and it don't necessarily be real. It be just what we see. So we got to really just start, um, like I say, just uniting, like, not allowing our ego, like, that's, because like, we be ego tripping. Like, even like, you know, in the streets, you know, people, you know, like, they, you know, they be ego tripping, you know, but even in the political, the social, whatever you want to, like, we be having our egos. So we really got to, you know, just, and I might not see things how you see. I might not necessarily believe how you believe, but at the end of the day, I want our people to be in a better condition. I want our youth to stop dying and going to jail. I want them to stop believing that, like, yeah, guns and drugs, that's the order of the day. So we agree on that. So let's just rely on that principle and begin working to help eradicate that. How we can eradicate it? Like we say one life at a time. That's what it is. Like, cause, cause, cause it comes from my attitude. Because the attitude, the attitude was black people are nothing. Then it came to a belief, then it turned into a law. You feel me? Cause the law was that we was three fifths of a man. Just giving a history lesson real quick. So that attitude is in us now. Today, how are you? I ain't nothing. Let's start with the attitude. It is what it is, right? Then we developed that belief. Then it, it, then it turned into an unwritten law in the streets that said, all we're supposed to do is die and go to prison. So I just think that I, me personally moving forward, I want to begin just begin building a working relationship with these men so I can know what's going on around the city. Because yeah. I truly care about the conditions of Baltimore City. So I want to know what's going on. So, you know, that's what I'm going to do moving forward. Just network with these brothers that's on this call. So thank you. Love it. Love it. All right, Brother Adam, come on. Yeah, so, um, you know, in the spirit of what the brothers have been saying, uh, you know, part of my inspiration for why, you know, I don't really get too discouraged uh, when we're talking about what to do uh, for all the things that are, you know, uh, hurting our community is that I feel like I'm surrounded about around a bunch of black people that are doing work in our community every day. And when people say like, you know, we can't solve the issues or, you know, how are we going to do it? It's like, well, people, it's, it's, it's a verb. Like people are doing it at the moment. The question is how much, uh, how much we can build on that momentum and get the resources to build out that momentum over a period of time you know five years ago during the Baltimore uprising people were talking about oh, man this ain't nothing going to change but there's so much stuff that's been happening in the background that I think we won't see the payoff until much later because a lot of it is infrastructure like structural problems require structural approaches and so I believe when you were on a, when you're working on structure and systems that you won't really see the results until much later and so I just feel like I just feel really confident especially with the brothers on this call that there's going to be uh, that Baltimore is not going to end up like DC or a lot of the other places because the, the people that live here are not going to allow that to happen. And I think that even with even in spite of all the you know the different uh, tactics and tools that white supremacy has thrown our way, uh, you know internalized inferiority 
and all the incentives we have to kill each other and destroy each other, I just firmly believe in the power of our community. That I believe in. I believe that we, uh, at the end of the day, will protect each other when it comes down to it. I just think we have to be uh, supportive of the black people in our community and the institutions in our community that are doing that. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, I feel like uh, most of the time I'm a broken record amongst my peers because we spend a whole lot of time. I, we spend I, a lot of us spend a whole lot of time saying, you know, you keep talking about how I'm going to do this. It's like, well, there's no I here. There's no me. It's the collective, it's the community. Like how are we gonna change our material conditions? And I think, I'm just confident it's gonna happen. And I think that if there's black people that don't, that feel despair, that the more time they spend around black people that are doing work, as opposed to Negroes that aren't doing shit, then they'll feel better about what's happening in Baltimore too. Well talk. <laughs> All right, John P. Coma. I'm, I'm a willing man, you know, um... I'm, I'm willing to work with our people to get where we need to go. Um, I mean, I, I don't have much, much more words than that. I'm really not big on talking. That's why I get excited when I start talking about this stuff. Um, but uh, I mean, I'm just, I'm ready to turn that corner, you know? And uh, I think I've met enough black men and black women in Baltimore that that can do it. And um, I think everything has been said that I can say on this call. So, you know, echo everything, one love to everyone. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm willing and ready to work with anyone. That's about, you know, black progress, black pride, black power. All right, all right. And John, when it comes to um, Architects of Justice, can you tell us a little little bit about where you are in the city and where you I'm, guys work out of? I'm in Cherry Hill, like Cherry right, Hill. I'm, I'm in Cherry Hill pretty much. So, um, you know, we right across the street um, on Carver, Brownview and Carver. Um, so, you know, we're here every day, there's, the Rich Program down here, raised in Cherry Hill, Mike Battle. There's Black Year Institute with the brother Eric. There's Elevate. Um, that's working in schools, um, and myself. So uh, some good work going on from this building. But you know, you guys doing some good work in Cherry Hill. That's and that's an area that's they're looking to gentrify. So you oh, yeah. you got to you got to work down there. That's near that water. Yeah. That's right they, off of the city. You know they want Cherry, Cherry Hill going to be Strawberry Hill if you don't watch it, bro. Nah, it's, it's, it's coming. And we can – the thing is you can suspect it. I don't want to start talking again, but you you can suspect it um, nearly everywhere there's public housing. Um, yep. You know, Gilmore Homes, they're coming for it. McCullough Homes, they're coming for it. Wow. Um, Cherry Hill, they're coming for it. You know, uh, Perkins Homes, they're coming for it. Like, you know, it doesn't take much to see. And you can't can't really believe what they're saying about the plans for those places. Never believe it. They 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 use the same model in every city. They tell the people they're gonna be able to come back once they tear it down. Nope. Nope. It's not happening. So the it projects is really a project. <laughs> Without a doubt. Without, Without a, a doubt. doubt. Without a doubt. And they need to be torn down, but they need to be replaced with adequate housing and give opportunity to the folks that live there. That's all. That's it. That's it. Brother Cleo, take us out. 
Um, well, I am, regardless of what I've seen in my over half century of witnessing things, I'm encouraged, I'm committed. I'm going to die advocating for transforming, empowering Black folks and trying to create a new tomorrow and go get past step one to other places for Black people. I mean, that's the way it is. No matter what happens, that's just the way it is for me. And it's the way it's always going to be. I'm going to be an asset to Black people, period. How I behave, what I do, my decisions, my imagination, my activity, my profession, my commitment is to the advancement of Black people, period. That's going to continue. Um, when it comes to the solutions that I believe in, I've already spoken to the, the fact that we have to unlearn the myth of white supremacy and the myth of Black inferiority, and that that needs to be a curriculum that's simultaneously in place to any, everything else that we do. And uh, Comer kind of affirmed that when he talked about the self-hate that we're dealing with and how uh, my paraphrase that is intergenerational. It's a paralyzing, asphyxiating norm that until we take a look at it and learn to unpack it, recognize it, decode it, and deflect it, we're going to keep relapse, relapsing back into the state of cynicism with leaders doing whatever they can to help, but being isolated as opposed to a collective leadership of, of us as a community working as a collective to advance ourselves. When it comes to into more microscopic details of strategies, I only do that in private spaces with black people because white people are laying in wait to compromise anything that's a great idea for our community. So I don't talk about solutions in great detail in mixed company. And I don't mean mixed in terms of the people who are on this particular call, but who's watching this call. Mm -hmm. Because we know about Marcus Garvey, we know about other black people who have built things and, and white supremacists sent, sent confused black people, which is not a difficult species in the United States. Confused black people is not a difficult species of human being in the United States. I want to emphasize that. It's easy to find somebody confused, somebody who believes that white water is wetter and white fire is hotter and that people who look more like Jesus looks are better than everybody else, who are unconsciously involved in an anti-black campaign sent into the work by somebody white, which is why we have all these fake leaders that keep coming up and who keep being lifted up because the people that sent them in know they're going to keep us down. So knowing that that's, that's a real phenomenon that we have to contend with, I don't get into the solution area in detail. Now, as we're in a face-to-face -face room, and we've committed to do some work for Black people, and we committed to collectively strategize on behalf of these things that we're talking about while doing some Black self-conceptual repair work. Because from a self-conceptual perspective, we, a lot of us don't like ourselves, and it's unconscious. It's not conscious. It's unconscious. We don't realize it. And we have not addressed it for so many generations. We have mistaken Black dysfunction for culture. For that's what Black people do. We have to unlearn those negative expectations simultaneously to the other great work we're doing. But similar to Adam, um, I also am encouraged because I also surround myself with black folks who are doing something and the ones who are around me too long who are not doing something, I train them how to do something. And I develop new leadership so young black people can have a whole nother trajectory around their possibilities and, and work they must do to help black people. And I'm, I'm proud to say that I've been able to work with a number of young people who went from anti-black 
to pro-black soldiers and not just rhetorical soldiers, but who are putting in the work and who are doing things. So I'll close by saying that that development of our youth, that training and that affirmation and guidance of our youth and teaching them to decode and, un and unlearn anti-black norms and decode the sources in the, in the culture that teaches us that needs to be part of our work. We've got to bring young people with this. One of the problems I have with some of our most known leaders, I'm not saying no names, but some of them are 90 years old, is that we don't see what they, who they've trained. And there's so many of us who have a fear of irrelevance that we can't pass the mic. And we got to learn to pass the mic and create new leaders so we can have vibrance in youth in the soldier position throughout our whole experience in this country so we can win. And my goal to be part is to be on and part of the winning team. And I'm here to help make that happen. Love it. That's powerful. That's powerful. So Brandon, um, give us, tell us about your business because we're going we're gonna to close this out. So we also want to reiterate your business again. So there's people who need your services. Give it to us. Thank you. So uh, my company is Jumpstart Cleaners Service. Um, we do residential, we do commercial, COVID-19 cleaning, carpet cleaning, move out, move in. Uh, we operate in a, basically like a 25-mile radius, um, but I will come, you know, we just have to make other arrangements. But um, we're growing, you know, we're gaining more commercial contracts, you know, as the day goes on. So that's just a blessing, man. I'm just diligent, just trying to network. And just like I say, grow the business. And I also have a delivery service that I'm call your service because Amazon is concerned that I'm in the process of just securing a contract. So, you know, I'm working. I, I want to become a viable businessman in this city and, 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 and you know, just see what the world has to offer. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really impressed after you said you had a 16-year stint. And for you to come out and you've been out for two years and you have a business, you're working, you're going forward in this community and you're helping others. That's come. I got to commend you on that. And, and that's what we have to do. So I had a question for you, brother. Uh, is it Ju is Jumpstart Cleaning Services LLC on Facebook? Yes, sir. Yep, that's me. Okay. So, someone yesterday asked me if they were, they were looking for a black owned cleaning business. So. I'm trying to get a referral. <laughs> black box gets three percent. Let me tell you, black box gets three percent of that contract. <laughs> we gotta feed the black community. Remember, that's what we're talking about. Feed the black community. <laughs> yeah, we recirculate the money. So, guys, let me. I want to say, um, T.J., Brandon, John, Adam, Ray Kelly, Dr. Cleo. Black Box Radio just thanks you guys for your genius, for your input. Um, we all want to see Baltimore flourish. Um, it was so important for me to get the, um, a men's, the, the men's like lens because of course I'm a woman and um, it's a lot of men who need to hear from men. And here to hear from some of the men in the community actually activating and, and doing things that's outside of their own families for the betterment of all of us. So I appreciate you guys' voice tonight. Um, I definitely um, appreciate um, some of the um, things that you brought forth. I, I, I did some notes. 
And I hope that we all can stay together. I think, and I'm going to put in, um, when we actually post this, I'm going to put information for everyone because we should stay in touch. This is something that um, we, we need to build alliances. And um, we can't always talk on Zoom, but, um, you know, we will link up and come together because really Baltimore has a lot of amazing grassroots and um, amazing talent that is all working on, in their own little island. And we need to bring this together and, and be more powerful in a more unified manner. So I say thank you to everyone. And um, anybody got any last words they want to put down? Anybody want to sing us out, rap us out? <laughs> well, I just, I just wanted to really quickly say very proud of you, Brandon, because um, you know, you, you, your, your starting point was probably a little bit behind some of us. Yeah. And uh, to come out and come out fighting like you are is a testament. And your story has to be told and shared. Um, while I was on this call, um, one of the people I used to work with actually supervised um, sent me a text message of a guy that we used to arrest as a juvenile and then later as an adult over and over again. Problem, problem, problem. And he sent me the text message of this young man's book that he wrote. After being shot a couple of times, he's turned the corner. And I was um, actually messaging with the individual while we were on the call, uh, telling him how proud I was. And he thanked me for kicking his butt, not literally, uh, with y'all going back trying to get me, but, um, <laughs> but, but kicking his butt for trying to get him on, to help him get on a straight and narrow. And, he, and people do it in their time. Yes. But that's where we have to understand that police aren't the judge, jury, and executioners. We, we have to see what someone can become. And some people need time to become that. And um, just just a big shout out to you and certainly all the uh, people on this. And thank you, Queen, for putting it on and allowing me to be part of this group of um, hardworking uh, industries guys who have done a thousand times more work than I've ever done. And um, I, I appreciate being a, a piece of that. So look forward to the future. Yeah, we needed your political lens. So I wanted to bring you into that. And you know, Ray I ain't no politician though. Yeah, the politician. And then you know, Ray, Ray is out here, but Ray um had some tough times at the beginning and he's fighting for the community. So a lot of that's going on. You know what I mean, Ray? And and I think we have to continue to uh champion brothers like Brandon because I can remember. So I've been home now for 13 years and I feel like that's an important component of me staying visible and standing out there on Pennsylvania Avenue doing productive and constructive things. Those guys remember me. You stood out there with me and Twan. You see, I mean, this is where yeah. we did our worst stuff. Yeah. And those guys see now that not only is change possible for people in our situation, but really we can flourish and there is no limit on where we can go yep 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 and 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 that's why it's important for grassroots a lot of time the grassroots community is people who are, who've actually been a pariah one time in the community and they come that's why you don't throw people away um they can come back and be the the the, the light of the community and so in baltimore we have a lot of that and then we have a lot of young thunder we got you know brother adam you know um and John and and we got we got brother Cleo in the city. 
old thunder, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got some old thunder and light. But but not only that, your tutelage and what you can what you can teach us and the behavioral aspects of it. You're here in Baltimore City. We need these tools. These are incredible tools. And so, um, as a woman, I feel safe around you, you black men. I really do. Um, and that's really what black women want. We want to feel safe around our men. And um, I feel safe around you guys. And I know that if we keep this up and, and, and we coalesce and we keep these alliances going, we're going to change the city and we're going to have a place where our children and everyone's going to be safe. So listen, we're going to stay linked up. I appreciate you guys. I'm humbly grateful for your appearance tonight. From Black Box Radio, I say thank you. Everybody, good night. Thank you. I love when um, you have so many voices. I think it is um, the best part of these type of panels is hearing so many perspectives. And um, so I really enjoy this, this talk, Brother Cleo. What you think? What you think? Like I told you in one of our previous conversations, I have been involved in a gazillion conversations, a gazillion. <laughs> Yes. I'll make a calculator that counts the number high enough for the conversations I've had. Mm -hmm. and, and, I'm in, and I'm involved in this conversation for you, frankly. Um, and well, you know, I, I, I want to make a comment because you, you were coming for her sign pretty hard. Like, <laughs> you see the sign over Queen Shoulder? Can you see Queen Shoulder? Oh, no. I don't know. You can't even see Queen. I tried to ignore that. Y'all can't see all of this chocolate over here. We talk about the we see, we see teeth. We see teeth in that black that uh, Black Lives Matter sign that everybody came for tonight. Oh, you see my teeth. Teeth and Black Lives Matter on the sign. I was like, oh, get them, oh, get them. Like, <laughs> yeah, he came for Black Lives Matter. He's right. They only show up. Yeah, I mean, I see, you know they sit right on your shoulder. They my sisters, but they they not they not present for the micro issues. They're macroly present and they're not really present because they're, they're now bigger than the real work, I think. But anyway, we're not talking about them. We're but talking they on about your shoulders. So they like, they're in the building because it's like, you know, yeah, line it's, of sight. It's, yeah, that's true. But this is Black Lives, I mean, this is not Black Lives, this is Baltimore. <laughs> Look at me, went right back. This is Baltimore and we had some great men tonight, you know, who are doing a lot of work in the city. And, um, I think I feel encouraged. Well, but I think we got to bring this into a, a, a alliance and, and really talk real talk. You know what I'm saying, saying Brother Monago? Yeah, yeah, I don't want to interrupt GG. Seems to be trying to get a point across. Yeah, I, I think the, the real value wasn't even so much for, I mean, it's great that there are people who are, have been connected and are aware of each other. The real value is, I think, that people who were listening learned some things. Um, I, you know, just li listening to the way that um, different people are operating within the city and yep. raising the awareness and planting uh, a seed of hope and possibility in people who don't see it. Um, the way that a lot of times, you know, it can be discouraging when you don't feel like change is happening. So when you see people engaged in change, just the fact that you see that possibility in action through other people it can be powerful. And a lot of times when you are really engaged in a lot of work yourself and you do it every day, you know, it's like, okay, we, we, we talking again. I, I, we, we're saying, I, I've said this before and I've heard this before. There are a lot of people 
who this might be their first time hearing some of these perspectives. And yeah. I think there were a lot of really valuable things said on, on that level. And I could relate to, um, I can relate to places that different people are just by virtue of the different types of work that I've been involved, involved with over the years. I could see myself in a lot of the challenges that people were expressing in the work and the frustrations and, mm-hmm. you know, just the visibility in the community. Uh, so, you know, I, I enjoyed uh, it listening, being able to listen and, um, and kind of take the conversation in from, from my point of view. So. And, and, and that's what I want Brother Cleo to understand. He does it so much because, you know, being black and right now he's really sexy. So people are calling on him a lot, a lot, a lot. And I get it. But what Black Box Radio's function in Baltimore City is, is to infotainment. We want to inform and entertain at the same time. Entertainment, we don't always have to be shaken to be, to be entertained. And information can be so, it can be entertaining, but it, can, it definitely can, cha- can change your life. And so when I have you on, Brother Cleo, it's not just for, for me, or, but it's for the people, because a lot of what you're saying, a lot of these folks have never been exposed to. Every mm-hmm. time when you finish talking, someone says to me, that, who is this guy? Like, you just showed up yesterday. You know, like, you haven't had that hat on in 40 shows this week. You know what I mean? Hey, you still can't get that bit? They still, your guy, you can't get to your guy? I think enough, like I saw his light on the other day. So I might, you know, I might have to tip it there to see what's going on. So, you know, part of of what we're doing in in Baltimore is trying to raise the, just pull that cap off. You know, uh, I see a lot, there's a lot of lack of information here. A well, lot of lack of access to the information also. Well, I think I get it. You know, um, I really think I get what Black Box is doing. I mean, having sp- spoken with you and been on your show and seen sh- interviews, et cetera. And I really appreciate his name. What's his name, Brandon? Yeah, Brandon was, mm-hmm. I really thought he, what he had to say was powerful. Yes. His, his personal story is powerful. Yep. And, the bro- and the brother that began the affirmation of him, that was very, very powerful because people are trained that people like him Ain't about nothing, and ain't gonna be about nothing. And he totally defies that, and he's and he can address issues. So I would like to see him do more, more public speaking, and tell his story. But he, but he don't just tell a subjective, personal story. He has some level of political analysis. Yep. And that has to happen alongside these personal stories, because a lot of black people, quote unquote, make it. But like, like the like the people say that the, one of the HBCUs that I worked at. This guy who had been a, um, you might have heard me say this before, this guy who had been a professor at this very well-known HBCU for almost 30 years, he said, we produce great black professors or black students, but we don't necessarily produce soldiers for black people. Mm. You know, people who are going to get, when they get their careers and their degrees, going to invest in black people when they get their gig. Mm. They just be gone to get their, get their Mercedes and they, and, and, and they gone. And I told him, I said, you know, why don't we take advantage, like white folks take advantage of Yale, that's where George Bush, you know, his people come from. Yeah. They're making soldiers for white supremacy and it's part of a strategy. How come you can't use this academic context to make sure that you invest in black students in ways that make them care about black life as part of their norms? I mean, for example, a lot of black student unions don't have strong alumni um, reinvestment. Nope. Because they have not been trained while they're there to, to value black people. 
That's true. So we had this conversation and, and he, he agreed, but he was uncomfortable. And we had a private conversation later because like, like Mr. Comer said, a lot of their money come from white folks and they don't want to offend them. Mm -hmm. So that's why I want to, I want to start having conversations privately about strategy because I don't know if, if, if many FBI agents are here right now, but I run a nonprofit. Yeah, but school is not the place for strategic. This is for us to connect, not to. We right, got right. To I'm just saying that you can do black affirming, strategic, successful work through the nonprofit machine. Yep. But you have to know how to do it, and you have to be very, 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 very strategic and intentional. And I am very strategic and intentional, and and manage dollars that come from the federal government and other kind of places because I'm very strategic and intentional. So it could be done. It could be done. Okay. But it can't be done if you have no imagination or blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I see the value of it. And um, I'm just admitting to having had a gazillion conversations. Well, I appreciate you coming on in um, Baltimore City. I mean, because so many people don't even know that a giant like you is here to even utilize your tools. You know, um, they just don't know. They're not even, they, ha they have no... Uh, no vision of the leaders we have in the city. And we think, you know, we hear of violence, we hear of chaos, we hear of um, decay. Everything about Baltimore when it comes out is, is, is something that should be on a show. Nobody talks about the work, you know, the, the, the art, the, one of the, some great schools in this, in this city um, by white people's standards, the Hopkins and the Micah. I mean, we're talking, you know, even by some one of the old, some of the oldest HBCU as, as Morgan State, 1867. We're talking about long-term things in Baltimore City. Harriet Tubman, um, the church for the underground rock. Baltimore has a hell of a legacy that no one speaks about because of the decay, the, the, the violence, and all of the stuff that has been engineered for the conversation. That's engineered conversation. But the greatness of what Baltimore has, and Pennsylvania Avenue used to be the hub of black entertainment in the world. <laughs> in this I know. country. I mean, this, this, is, this is what is in Baltimore that has been systematically dismantled, destroyed, attacked, all of this. As you mentioned, um, um, the Arch Social Club on that corner. That is a historical district that they allow a methadone clinic under, where at, across the street from a library. So you have all of these, these systematic movements you put in communities and you tear them down and you tear the people down and you blame the people. And that's what's happening in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't say who's doing it, but I'm seeing, I'm seeing the outcomes and it, it isn't from the people, it's, it's coming from power. Power has the, 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 the resources to do what we see. So the, when we have these conversations, Brother Cleo, it's for the people who don't recognize the layers that make up sure. what we're living in. We sure. think that all of a sudden black people just don't want to work. They're just drug addicts. No, that's not. No, no, no. no. We got to talk about what happened to get us here. Yes, we know? do. You know, and, and that's why we're having these conversations to so the, so the community can start loving on themselves and understand that they can make mistakes, but we can come back. We, everybody has a branding. Trust me, everybody's been branded. They might do a 16-year bid because they didn't get caught, but everybody has that story. 
and the redemption of the story is that brother is out here fighting. You know, I met him fighting, you know, in the street on Monday. So, you know, that that is why we do this. So, Brother Cleo, listen, I appreciate you. You're my mentor anyway, so you don't have a choice. You can't say no. You got to do it. I don't know really what you're talking about. <laughs> and, you know, when I, I'm, as I'm looking at my picture, guys, you know, I work out in the sun. I think I got a, a golden tan. What y'all think? I think it's that. That's not the way it's coming across oh. on my end. It's just... just... <laughs> It's just shadows. Like it's all good. I'm just letting you know. It's not coming across to you like a golden brown. No, no, it's just dark. Ah. It's just dark, and it's hard to see your face. I mean, I'm just telling you what it is. Um, but you see, you see, I told you, I texted you, brother Cleo. That's why I need you because this black man right here. No, no, I'm just letting you know when you get the video, and I can't. I got to put you in Photoshop so people that know you're there. You see, but brother Cleo said he can see my teeth. I can see your teeth in that Black Lives Matters. Okay. <laughs> as long as you can see my teeth, I mean, my, my mother did the right thing. She took care of my teeth. So, but um, I don't know what's wrong with the light, and I'm going to fix that by the next one. But listen, this has been an excellent talk. But Cleo, you want to say anything while we roll out of here? Good night. <laughs> He's like, it. I said enough. I mean, I've been talking for two hours. What else do you want me to say? That's what he's saying. You know, I get it. You know me, I just, I haven't been talking for two hours, so. But anyway. Right, I could tell as soon as you got the gun, like, you had, now's my chance. It's like now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you've been holding that the whole time. I, I was glad to meet and hear Mr. Comer. Yes, Mr. Comer, he's, we he's were, a bad We were guy. like this. We, we were yeah. like very I, I saw your head. I said, wow, that hat might fall off. Because <laughs> I saw your head. You was you was happy for him. So yeah, Adam, they just some powerful guys. Just powerful guys. All right, I'm G. All right. Thanks for everyone for listening in. We really appreciate everyone for spending time with us this evening. You can catch this entire conversation if you came in late or you missed it or you checking it out. You can find this and all of the great content we're putting together at blackboxradio.com. That's B-L-A-K-B-O-X-X-R-A. D-I-O. Make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss a single thing that we are putting down for you. Absolutely. All right, Queen from Black Box Radio, Dr. Cleo Bonago, the Masi Center for Wellness. For Black Wellness and Culture. Black Wellness and Culture. Get it right. The Masi Center for Black Wellness and Culture. You can find us at A-M-A-A-S-I dot org. Amasi.org. Amasi.org. Check that brother out. He's powerful. On behalf of Black Box Radio, we out. All right, y'all. Deuces. Good night. And thanks for the invitation. All right.